Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. A little late, but better than ever. Today, Rado talks through episode 8. Here we go. Now, I'm going to be starting out the new year, and I think... In today's episode, we're going to be hitting two big topics. First one, I'm going to continue from the recent Top 25 Most Anticipated Games of 2016 video I did by talking about another 50 or so games that I am already stoked for, because that seems like a good way to start off the year, talking about what's coming. You can check out, of course, the Top 25 in video form. There will be a link for it in the show notes of this podcast. And... All of the games I'm about to talk about in that top 25 plus this additional 50 or however many it is, I'm not really quite sure, these are all taken from a geek list that I maintain throughout the year on BoardGameGeek, which is my 2016 Games of Interest. That geek list, the link for that, is in the show notes as well. And if you're at all interested in the list I'm about to bang out, you might want to subscribe because I'll keep updating this throughout the year. So whenever I find out about new and exciting games that I am interested in playing because I think they'd be a good fit for me and Jen, I make a note of it on this geek list, in part just so I can keep track of all the stuff myself, but it's a great way for you guys and girls to hear about what's new as well. So, without further ado, let's start counting, basically going with, um, you know, uh, well, I guess my, no, actually, the top 25 I did was actually ranked in order of how excited. Now, all the rest of these, I haven't ranked them in any order So they are literally just in the order I discovered them or learned about them or basically the order I added them to this geek list. So take no, never mind about it. But like I said, actually, let me look here. So there's 25 on this page. Uh, How many are there total? Oh, I really, as always, I should have looked at this before I started recording. What is wrong with me, folks? Why would prep work kill me? I don't know. But anyway, there on this geek list, as of right now, there are 74 total items. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna bang out around 50 games. So get comfortable. After I'm done with that, if there's time, I am either gonna do one of two other things. I'm going to try and make a dent in all the questions and answers I've gotten over the last month or so. I've got about 30 of them built up, and Jen will be joining me for that, because I'm sure some of them she'll have some opinions on as well. Or I'll try to make a dent in the backlog of top 10 topics that I should be talking about. I'll probably hit the Q&A, though, because if I wait until the next podcast to hit top 10s, that means I can cover this month's top 10s as well, which is top 10s expansions, which I haven't even thought about or recorded or anything yet. So after I'm done with this list, part two of this podcast will be a Q&A section. I've decided this very moment, how exciting was that for you to be there at that pivotal time? But before I get into any of this, I am going to go get a drink of water to have at my side. So hang on, folks. I'll be right back. Okay, here we go. Number one or number 26, I should say, on my list of 2016 games of interest, 
Dragon Keepers. Now, this is a new game from Vito Lasardo, and I have to admit, I'm not 100% certain this one is going to make it out in 2016. I'm interested in it mostly because it's a Vito Lasardo game, and I pretty much have loved every game he's done so far. But what's interesting about Dragon Keepers is this is a design he is doing with his young daughter. The two of them are working on it together. And it's a subject that she proposed, uh, basically the notion of being a Dragon Keeper. Kind of sounds kind of like a Pokemon sort of thing, but with dragons instead of Pokemon. And I don't know much about it, other than the fact that this is going to be Vito Lasardo's, I guess, his first light game, since he's known for being like the master of really heavy, thinky Euros. But this is a thing he co-designed with his young daughter. This is going to be much more of a gateway-style game. That right there is enough to really get me enticed. I'm very, very interested in it, just for that reason and that reason alone. But there is some art for the game on Board Game Geek as well, and the art looks absolutely gorgeous. There's a whole range of interesting and beautiful-looking dragons for you to catch, because you're a dragon keeper. Now, the other thing that's interesting, I think, about this game, and it's interesting about this 2016 geek list I maintain over the course of the year, it's another reason people might want to subscribe, is often the developers of games will see that they've been added to this list, and they'll come along here and post information as well. And in this case, Vitel has. He actually posted because somebody mentioned had some questions about the thematic content of the game, and Vitel himself has actually replied. So that's actually really cool because uh, it looks like, from what he said right here, the game might be going through a bit of redesigning right now because the original content of it included hunting the dragons, and, you know, I guess potentially killing them. Uh, but it turns out they're not happy with that. So they've gone back to the drawing board, and now they've turned it into a fully cooperative game instead of a competitive game. So this is a report that Vidal has given on the geek list. And I guess because of that change, heck, maybe it won't make it for 2016. But even still, just from the art, just from the fact it's coming from him, and the fact that it's his first light game, I gotta know more about Dragon Keepers. Moving on to the next game, The Last Bastion. This is a game that's been on my geek list for the last few years, actually. Really been interested in it for a long time. It's a worker placement game all about a fantasy village that is besieged by monsters. And, you know, of course, you have to fight them off. This is a competitive game where we're trying to be the best at saving the village. But the interesting thing about this game that always caught my imagination is the fact that we as players are not big, powerful wizards and warriors and and um, thieves and rangers and all that. We're just local town folks with a pitchfork doing our best to fight off these hordes of goblins and whatever. And the worker placement element of this game is trying to divide our time getting training from the village elders so that we can become strong enough to fight off the bad guys. I think that's actually a really cool and refreshing twist on what has become over the last few years a very, very common game theme, you know, the, this whole kind of tower defense game. There's a whole bunch of these fancy tower defense board games now, but this is one where we are not uber heroes. We're just regular Joes trying to do our best. That sounds really cool. Very exciting. So I've been interested in The Last Bastion for quite a while. Can't wait to learn more. Hopefully, it'll make it out in 2016. Next up is Quest for the Open Tavern which is another fantasy-themed game that I've been following for a while. I hoped it was going to come out last year. I hope it's going to come out this year. And this is interesting um, because this is another 
competitive game, and this one's actually fairly directly head to head. You know, it's for you know players facing off against each other, which is something Jen and I tend not to go for. We tend to go for more of the multiplayer solitaire. Well, hey, I'll tend my garden, you tend your garden. At the end of the game, whoever has the best garden wins. This game, you're very much at loggerheads. But we've often found that we can enjoy direct head-to-head duels if, well, if the theme is really, really interesting and or the game is really, really asymmetric. And in this case, both of these things are true. Because in this game, you the setting is a fantasy village. One player is the mayor of the village, whose job it is to keep the village clean and tidy and safe and well-run and all that. And the other players are drunken, rowdy adventurers who are just looking for an open tavern after successfully having plundered some dungeon. Now they've headed off to town, and they're just kind of tearing the place up, kind of like rock stars. Um, And so, you know, they are just here trying to have a good time, and they're a bit rowdy and out of control, while the mayor player is trying to keep them under control. That is a very, very cool and interesting scenario. And the players have, apparently, radically different um, approaches to how they achieve their goals. That sounds like a lot of fun. I'm very, very excited about Quest for the Open Tavern. And next up, we have Sales to Steam. Uh, This one I think I've had on my um, anticipation list for a couple of years. Again, hopefully 2016 is the year it's going to be. It's a a civilization-building game uh, with a big, big focus on ocean travel. And I have to admit... It's gotten now to the point where I just put sales to see him on my list without even thinking about it anymore. Because I, I, I just remember, at some point in the past, I was really excited about it. And I did my research. I found out what the gameplay was like and all that. And I knew, yeah, this is a game Jen and I were going to want to check out. I'm a bit embarrassed to say, at this point, I've been waiting for it so long, I've kind of forgotten why I like it, um, but I am still excited about it. Uh, sales to Steam. It's been in development for a long time. Hopefully, that's a good sign. Hopefully, it'll be great. Hopefully, this will be the year we finally see it. Now, on to something I can probably talk a little bit more about. And actually, you know, I mean, if I'm going to be talking about 50 games, I do have to go fairly quick. I can't go into a lot of detail on these games, but that's understandable because a lot of these games I don't know much about. But, and um, the next one, Simurg. Call of the Dragon Lord uh, is something I can talk a little bit about because this is an expansion for a game I did a run-through for last year called Simurg. Simurg, if you haven't seen that run-through, is a very interesting competitive worker placement game where uh, players are trying to... Well, you know, they're kind of middle managers, as is often the case in these sort of Euros. But you're in a fantasy world of Dragon Riders. It's kind of like Dragon Riders of Pern, the board game or something like that. Where uh, players, you know, they breed dragons, uh, you know, who give them special powers, and they train up dragon riders who can ride those dragons, and then they go out into the world and explore to collect resources that they can use to continue driving their, you know, dragon empire, for lack of a better term. And the cool thing about the game was that I really liked in the base game is it's a worker placement game where you are building the world as you go because a lot of your worker placement spots are these spaces on the board that players add. I I want to explore off to the south. And so you uh, take a tile and you create an entire region for you to explore. But as soon as you create this region to explore, other people can start exploring it as well. And maybe they'll, through worker placement, get to the stuff that you were hoping to explore. It was a very, very clever game. It worked really nicely from MSKN. And it's going to get its first expansion in 2016. So I can, I, I'm very, very excited about it because the base game was so cool. And so that is Simurg, Call of the Dragon Lord. 
Next up, we have the Expansive Hospital. And that's interesting. My number 25 in the video companion I did to this was Acute Care, which in the video I did, I kind of ranted a little bit about why is it so hard to find hospital simulation board games that are cooperative in nature, where players are working together to try to save lives. They always seem to be competitive. And so I was very excited about Acute Care. Now, actually, I forgot to mention in that video, so I'll mention right now, I totally spaced... Of course, Healthy Heart Hospital is a game that came out, or actually is only just now coming out, and I've got a pre-release copy of it from Victory Point Games, and that is a cooperative game where players, each player takes on the role of a doctor, trying as best they can, working together, to deal with the onslaught of patients. So, I'm excited about that game, but I'm still excited about Acute Care, and I'll be honest, I'm excited about the Expansive Hospital, because what's interesting about this one, a game where we are hospital administrators, is it's a semi-cooperative game where we are all working in the same hospital, doing our best to make sure the hospital stays afloat, while still bucking for a promotion to become the general manager, the, the cuddy of this hospital, if you were to think in house terms, the wonderful TV show. So we have to, you know, we, we're trying to do the best we can for our departments and all that while still trying to make sure the uh, hospital doesn't go bankrupt because then everybody loses. So I don't know what's going on here, but all of a sudden there's this explosion um, between acute care, healthy heart hospital and the expansive hospital. I, you know, I've been waiting for, a, you know, oh, and you know, last year we had clinic as well. So all of a sudden there's all these cool heavy Euro-ish, medium weight to heavyweight Euro-ish hospital simulations. Which one is the best one? I don't know, but I love the idea, and I just love that all these games, um, you know, unlike Clinic, which again is competitive, where I'm just trying to um, you know, be the best clinic and all that, I'm, I'm excited. It's a, it's a cool theme. It's one that Jen and I find very, very interesting. Jen's mom was a nurse for years. Uh, you know, we, we love the TV show House. You know, everybody remembers ER. So it's cool. I mean, everybody's played Sim Hospital. So I'm excited about the expansive hospital, specifically because it, seem, it seems its big thing is semi-cooperative as opposed to fully cooperative after having a series of competitive games. So let's see what that's going to bring us. Next up, we've got Cabriolet. <clears throat> the reason this is on my list is mostly because of the designer, Doug Bass. This is his sophomore effort. The first game he designed was called Garden Dice. And that is a lovely little gateway dice rolling game of tending your own like kind of community plot garden that just worked out really, really nice. Jen and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And based on the strength of that, I want to see what Doug does next. And so what is he doing now? Uh, he's making a game where players are 17th century or 18th century furniture makers. Uh, and it's card drafting, worker placement. That's all I know. But Garden Dice was very lovely. So I expect good things from Cabriolet. Next up, we have ZNA, which I know the Z stands for zombies. I don't know what the NA stands for. It's a post apocalypse survival horror zombie game with lots of miniatures and all that kind of stuff. Now, this is kind of, you know, a zombie side type thing. This is something that normally I would run screaming from. I'm not, don't get me wrong. I love zombies. I love Walking Dead. I still read the comic book. I can't wait for um, the season to pick back up. I have no zombie fatigue whatsoever. But Jen, as a general rule, doesn't like zombies at all. It's just not in her wheelhouse. I mean, we have a few zombie games that she enjoys, like, uh, oh, um, Goblins versus Zombies. And what's that deck builder? 
think of the word eaten is in it. Um, looking up from the wall. Oh, I, or, or eaten by zombies, I think. Um, but anyway, uh, so you know, Jen doesn't mind zombies if they're kind of lighthearted and cute. But when they're like heavy, gross, gore type zombies, she's not that interested. I'm worried she might not be interested in this. But I'll be honest, the reason I'm interested in ZNA is because it's another one of these games that, you know, it has a deep, rich, cooperative board game experience. But it is also driven by a companion digital app. And if you remember... Back in 2014, I was super stoked about apps, app integrate, digital app integration into board game design. Things like Alchemist, things like XCOM, things like World of Yoho. To me, I'm not saying that's the future because, quite frankly, digital games development is way too expensive for most board game publishers to get into. That's why it's never going to take over, but any publisher who dabbles in it and tries to find cool new ways to create board game experiences using digital integration immediately grabs my attention. And ZNA promises that. Now, ZNA actually had um, a Kickstarter campaign, I believe, last year, where you know they showed off a lot of stuff, but it ended up being canceled. And I don't know if it's going to pick back up. But from what I remember, what I saw there... Oh, that's right. The other thing it has, augmented reality. That, I'm super excited, which is the notion of you know, taking a digital camera, looking through your camera to see things pop up on the board. I love that. Um, Ravensburger, a few years ago, did a version of Scotland Yard, which is only available in German to this day. Man, I would buy that in a heartbeat if they would bring it out in English, or at least just you know modify the app so you could use it in English. I love the idea of the, the, the static physical board come to life when I look at it. I mean, that's kind of what World of Yoho does as well. And there's a couple other games that have done it. ZNA, it was coming, though, from a very, very big design group. You know, big funded. This was not like a little fly-by-night thing. This is a big thing. So I'm really excited. I hope it comes back. I hope it sees the light of day. Because um, I'd really like to see more of it. That's ZNA. Moving up, I'm going to mention three games. Valeria Card Kingdoms, Villages of Valeria, and Quests of Valeria. So, um, I believe Valeria Card Kingdoms is going to be coming out very, very soon. It was on Kickstarter last year. I did a run-through for the prototype, and it was an excellent game that basically took the gameplay of Machi Koro, which is a game that Jen and I, we wanted to enjoy, but we just could not. It's, for us, that game was just way too shallow and also just way too mean-spirited. We could never quite get into it. But Valeria Card Kingdoms took those base gameplay ideas and really expanded it and created a lot of really interesting, exciting gameplay. Jen and I really enjoyed our time with the prototype, so I cannot wait for the full commercial release. But that's just the start, because um, in January, the sequel to it, Villages of Valeria, is going to come out, set in the same world with the same art style. The art was absolutely gorgeous. From artist The Miko, who is fast becoming one of my favorite artists in the uh, board game industry. And so, I've actually got a prototype of it sitting over there on the table. I have played it yet. I need to get this played because I think they're planning on sometime late this month. So I'm excited about that. And then later in the year, we're going to get Quests of Valeria. And my understanding is all three of these games combined tell the story of the evolution of this kingdom of Valeria. And, you know, and that's something we've seen in the past. Uh, AEG was doing that for a while with their Tempest series, where they did a series of games that were all set in this fictional kingdom called Tempest. And so now um, we've got another one. Uh, you know, and that kind of went nowhere, but those those games didn't really 
capture anybody's imagination. It's interesting. Everybody forgets that Love Letter is a game in that Tempest series, but that's the only one that anybody ever really caught any traction. I suspect that uh, Valeria Card Kingdom, as more and more people get to play it once it hits retail, is, you know, it's not going to be as big as Machi Koro, but I think for a lot of people who wanted to like Machi Koro, because Machi Koro was such a big deal, and then it really kind of fell flat for so many people, Valeria Card Kingdom is going to step in, and that could be a good basis, a good starting point for these other Valeria games from the same designer artist, although I believe there are some additional designers working um, with him. I'm not quite sure what the other ones are, but I'm excited because I love the idea of multiple games set in the same universe where if you play all of them, you get a bigger, richer picture of the world that you're exploring. I just love that. I think it's so very cool. So uh, 2016, apparently the year of Valeria. Let's move on. Next game I've got on here on the list uh, is Arkwright. Now, this was a very super-duper heavy game that came out, was it last year or the year before? I don't quite remember. And I have to admit, uh, I oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. It came out at the same time from the same publisher as Lagranha. Is that right? From uh, Spielworks? I think so, yes. Lagranha, which Jan and I got and fell in love with. Lagranha, I think, made my... Um, in 2014 was like my number three game or my number two. And, you know, and a lot of people got excited about it. Stronghold picked it up. It came out from Stronghold in 2015. So it's kind of a big success. Everybody's really excited uh, by Lagranha. Arkwright came out at right the same time from the same publisher, Spielworks, um, and got a very small printing. And there is a very devout following to that game because it's apparently, I haven't played it, a super-duper heavy, dry, economic industrial simulation that apparently is absolutely bonkers phenomenal. One of the best heavy economic simulation euros of, you know, the last five years, supposedly. From everybody who did actually get a chance to play it. Now, I have to admit, I did not seek it out originally because I was scared away by the fact that it's an incredibly heavy game that on average, apparently, if you play the full game, takes upwards of five hours to complete. And that was pretty much a non-starter for me and Jen. Whenever a heavy game goes over two hours, we, it's very rare that Jen and I won't just, well, okay, we got a clock out. That's too much for us. So I passed on Arkwright, and I've regretted it ever since because everybody says it's so amazing. And it had this incredibly small print run, and it looked like it was never going to see the light of day again. But... It is getting a reprint in 2016. So we've all got a second chance to check it out. And what's more exciting is, my understanding is that the rules have been updated with, a, with shorter, faster versions that don't scrimp on the overall experience so that you can get the full scope of it without having to devote five hours. So suddenly, I am very excited about the hopefully successful and triumphant return of Arkwright. So you can watch for that in 2016. Moving on. Let's talk about another game that I did a run-through of for the prototype when it was on Kickstarter in 2015, Millennium Blades. So you can go watch my run-through to see more about why. I mean, that game was really spectacular. It's a really interesting, far-out scenario, far-out theme. It basically replicates... 
It, 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 it's The game itself is not a collectible card game like Magic the Gathering, but what it does is it replicates the professional tournament scene around a collectible card game like Magic the Gathering. Um, you know, and, and this is interesting in part because, you know, Jen and I, we used to play Magic the Gathering back in the day, back in the 90s. I mean, heck, we used to play in tournaments. Magic the Gathering helped pay for our house when we uh, moved to Bend, Oregon. <laughs> you know, so Magic the Gathering is going to be, even though we're long behind it, I think... The uh, you know a game set, not about the game, not about the collectible card game itself, but set in the world where each player it takes on the role of a professional collectible card game player in this international tournament. That's really really cool. Very very different. And but the game itself. At its core, what it is 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 a deck builder where you're trying to build the 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 collectible card game deck that you're going to take into your tournaments. And the card the deck building aspect of this game happens in real time. The board that's laid in front of you is a marketplace of all these different rare cards that are coming onto the market all the time. And players are in real time with you know with with a, with a stopwatch trying to build their decks uh, because they only have a certain amount of time before they build their deck, and then they've got to go compete in a tournament. It was a really far-out funky game, and the game actually goes so far as to recreate the tournament itself. It's, it's not like playing like a, through a full tournament of Magic the Gathering. I don't know. Jen and I, we used to play a lot of sealed deck Magic the Gathering tournaments. We loved them a lot. So it doesn't try to replicate the whole thing, but it, it encapsulates the entire experience of playing through a tournament in this one very quick little mini-game inside the greater game. And you know what? Quite frankly, the little mini-game of tournaments inside this game was good enough to be a game on its own. But then on top of that, you've got this real-time, not auction, but this real-time marketplace simulation that was quite unlike anything I've ever seen before. The closest thing it replicates is the real-world experience of being an avid collectible card game player trying to get all the, the right rares that you need to build the best deck to be able to take in your tournament. It was it was astonishing. It was bonkers how ambitious, how audacious this game was. And then what was even more amazing is how well it pulled it off. It was an absolutely amazing game. We only got to play it as a prototype. It's going to come out for reels in 2016. It's definitely one to watch for. Millennium Blades. And now, let's say moving on, we've got the Manhattan Project Chain Reaction. Now, the Manhattan Project Energy Empire actually made my top 25 most anticipated games when I did this in video form. And it's interesting, Minion Games, the publisher of the Manhattan Project, which I've done a run-through for in the past. Manha- I've done a, project, a run-through for Manhattan Project and its expansion. I can't remember the name of its expansion right now. But anyway, Manhattan Project is a really, really great, I'm not even going to say good, I'm going to say great worker placement game with some really clever mechanisms that have since, it was kind of revolutionary at the time, the, uh, the, the way it did worker placement, and now, since then, there's several other games that have kind of you know, taken the ideas and, and done different takes on it, but Manhattan Project still stands uh, you know, as, a, as a strong, strong worker placement game. Jensen, my only problem with it, two problems are, it's kind of mean. It has this whole kind of cutthroat in your face, I will destroy your stuff element that Jen I never really appreciated. And then on top of that, the theme of it is, well, the Manhattan Project. Different nations vying in a nuclear cold war to develop the most atomic bombs to win the game. And that was something Jen was never very comfortable with. So in spite of how brilliant the game was, I mean, we always kind of had this kind of love-it-hate-it relationship with it. Because we liked the gameplay. It was really, really good worker placement stuff, but didn't like the theme. 
didn't like the cutthroat. So I've already talked about Manhattan Project Energy Empire, which dumps the Cold War trying to destroy the world with atomic weapons theme and replaces it with trying to save the world by building more and more power plants to provide power for the world. Super excited about that. But what's interesting is Minion Games, they know they've got a hit on their hands with Manhattan Project. Manhattan Project is a really great game. So, I'm sorry, this is a long preamble to talk about Manhattan Project Chain Reaction, which I've put on my... Because this is basically going back to the original Manhattan Project, but instead of it being a, a you know big, robust worker placement board game, this is a card game version. This is like you know Manhattan Project, the card game. And it uses one of my absolute favorite gameplay mechanisms of all time, the multi-use card, where you know this card I could use it for X, Y, or Z. Now, the original Manhattan Project really, in some ways, revolutionized worker placement. And I am wondering if Manhattan Project Chain Reaction will do the same thing for card games. That's why I'm excited about it. Even though, again, I'm a little bit put off on Jen's behalf about the theme, because the theme is going to be something not everybody likes. But I have high, high hopes for the gameplay. I don't even know what the gameplay is, but I'm still excited because of the pedigree for Manhattan Project Chain Reaction. Moving on, we've got another expansion I'm stoked for, Kingdom Builder Marshlands. And you know what? I don't need to say anything other than Kingdom Builder Roxor. It is a fantastic, phenomenal game. We absolutely love it. Every expansion that's come out has improved the game immeasurably, even though, I mean, heck, you don't... Kingdom Builder is good enough. It doesn't need expansions. But every expansion from designer, designer Don Lex Vaccarino has just created more flexibility, more variability, more variety... And yay, another one is coming out, Marshland. So I'm excited for that just because Kingdom Builder rocks my socks so much. So let's move on to something new, though, Covert. Now, this is a spy versus spy dice worker placement game. And I don't know much about it. Uh, obviously, uh, you know, and I'm a little bit nervous about the, the versus part in Spy versus Spy. You know, I like spies and espionage. Who doesn't? But the reason this made my list is less about the game and more about the designer, Kane Klenko, who last year put out two games, Dead Men Tell No Tales, which was a fantastic little cooperative pirate um, versus the undead game. Uh, that were just worked great. Just kind of came out of nowhere and was phenomenal. And then right at the end of the game, he also put out a wonderful little cooperative uh, um, dice game called Fuse, which is about players in real time trying to defuse bombs by using a, a pool of dice as a, a, a dice drafting game, which was phenomenal. I got to play it at Board Game Geek, played it a half a dozen times, instantly fell in love with this game. So, Kane has actually, last year, he had a great year. He put out two games, and Covert is his next game. That's why I'm interested. Don't really care about the gameplay. Don't need to know. I just know Kane, so far, is two for two, putting out really solid, sharp, well-designed, fresh, and innovative games, so I can't wait to see what he does next with Covert. Hey, moving on. We have got Welcome to Centerville. Now, this is interesting. This is from designer Chad Jensen, and it is basically Urban Sprawl, the card game. And you remember, I did a run-through for Urban Sprawl years ago, which is a brilliantly designed, very, very heavy, very bitty, very um, very brilliant, but kind of tough-to-handle city-building game, you know, inspired by SimCity, that sort of thing where players are all building towards the same city and trying to be the best as kind of 
you know, real estate moguls building it up and scoring lots of victory points by, you know, achieving certain goals and stuff like that. And, you know, Jen and I both like that game a lot, but we've always been kind of put off by its length and also the fact that it is very bitty. It is very fiddly. There's a lot of stuff you have to keep track of. I mean, so much so that to play that game, you pretty much need, um, you know, there's several, you can go on Board Game Geek and you can download all these little Excel macro spreadsheets to keep track of all the scoring opportunities. It's, it's, it's a really neat game. Uh, but again, you can see my run through for more. So we liked it, but it's always been just like a little bit hair too heavy for us to want to get the game out. But now, Chad has effectively made the card game version of it called Centerville. And so I'm interested, mostly because playtesters of the game have already reported that it is phenomenal. And it does everything that a fan of Urban Sprawl, but looking for something lighter, it does everything that it should do, and it does it very well. So I'm really stoked for that. I mean, basically, Urban Sprawl, the card game, or I'm sorry, not card game, dice game. It's it's a dice game, not a card game. So I'm even more interested. I can't wait to see what it is. That is Welcome to Centerville. Okay, let's move on to London Dread. This is a cooperative game um, set in Victorian era. I, I think, I don't really know much about this game. My understanding is, or at least uh, my very limited knowledge of it is, this is a kind of, what do you call it, a Sherlock Holmes consulting detective style storytelling mystery solving cooperative game. Uh, I believe it comes with a certain number of scenarios, of missions for you to go through. Jen and I really, really, really like Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. And, but I mean, but the reality is that game was developed in the late 70s, early 80s. And while it is really brilliant, it does kind of show its age. I love the idea of a game that is inspired by that, but builds on the strengths of that and maybe brings more modern game design mechanisms and uh, approaches to that older game. That's why I'm interested, because we love the idea and would love to see a kind of a more modern take. And that is London Dread. That's all I know at this point. Next up, we have Einfest for Odin, which I was so bummed. I was actually going to get to play a, a prototype of this at Essen in 2015. I, I, I wrote them ahead of time and scheduled, right, I'm going to be there at 1 o'clock, and I'll get to play the prototype and all that. And I show up, and they say, oh, sorry, we totally forgot, and this session is booked. And that was my one chance, so I didn't get a chance to play it. And I was so bummed, because this is designer Uwe Rosenberg's next big heavy Euro. And if you know my show, you know me and Jen, we love Uwe Rosenberg, big heavy euros, like his Harvest Trilogy, you know, Agricola, and um, Gates of Loyang, and Aura, and Labora, and Glass Road. I mean, we haven't loved all his games, and in fact, recently, we've been enjoying Uwe's games less and less because he's gone more and more sandboxy in his design. And I don't know what's going to happen with Einfest for Odin. Maybe this is going to be another Uwe Rosenberg um, sandbox game like Caverna and like Fields of Arla. But man, I hope it gets back to his earlier design philosophy, like Agricola or you know uh, some of the other ones. It's and interestingly, this is probably the most interesting or surprising thing about it. This is a Viking simulation. Um, you know, Vikings were big in 2015. Apparently, 2016 is going to continue to see a lot of Viking love, uh, a Viking simulation from the master of the thematic Euro, Uwe Rosenberg. That's got to be interesting, right? 
Will it actually work out? I don't know. Will it come out this year? I don't know. But I'm excited to find out. That is Einfest for Odin. Okay, next up, we have Cuisine a la Card, which is a game I did a run for. Another one of these that, you know, Jen and I, we got to play in prototype form in 2015. Now it's going to be coming out in 2016. An excellent little deck-building game all about players competing on one of those cooking shows where everybody you know, has a certain amount of time and they're trying to make the, the, the best thing so they can be crowned master chef or whatever. That's the theme of the game, but it is a deck builder where you are drafting cards of different types of ingredients into your deck as fast as possible so that you can make dishes by combining all these different ingredients um, to make delicious meals that will impress the judges. These judges are cards that come out at the beginning of the game, and you know they're constantly updating throughout the game. That gives you targets of the types of meals you're trying to make because you want to score lots of points with them. When you do make a meal for them and score those judge cards, they give you new special abilities that will help you out. But the tricky thing is, right, it's a deck builder, right? You're collecting all these cards. Yay! You're building a strong deck. You eventually get the round where you make the perfect meal to impress the judge who really likes paleo meals or who really likes French food or whatever it might be. And you get them, so you have a new special power, but all the ingredients that you use to make that meal, they all get removed from your deck. So this is a deck building, followed by deck destruction, followed by deck rebuilding game. And so this game has a very interesting ebb and flow. Now, this is not the first deck destruction game. Um, I did another game for uh, one called Dale of Merchants. And then there's another one um, Oh, from AEG. What is it? It's the Egyptian game. Oh, I can't think of the name of it. Oh, it's driving me nuts. I haven't done a run through for that, but um, so there are these other deck builder games that have this notion of hey, I, um, you know, and again, eaten by zombies is another one where yeah, I build up a deck, and then by the end of the game, the deck gets destroyed. The deck gets, um, you know, we built it, but then it gets torn apart. Cuisine a la carte was interesting because you build it and destroy it, and then build it and then destroy it again. So it has a different feel. The other interesting thing about this game is that it borrows a lot of its core mechanisms from Star Realms, which some people may know is a mega popular, mega hit card deck builder that came out of nowhere. Cuisine a la card you know, has the same basic mechanisms of you know, you're, you're drafting from a supply of cards that constantly refreshes every round, much like Ascension or you know, Marvel deck builder, or lots of deck builders use this system. And like Star Realms and Cuisine a la carte, if nothing else, you're trying to draft cards that match the different styles of ingredients. But it takes that Star Realms mechanism and improves on it so much. Because I'll be honest, I don't see the love for Star Realms. Um, the uh, Tasty Minstrel game I did a run through for last year, the Call of Cthulhu, what was that one called? Um, Cthulhu Realms really improved on Star Realms hugely. But I think Cuisine a la carte improves on both of them. Eugene, I liked it a lot. I cannot wait for the final commercial release to come out this year. Very excited for Cuisine a la carte. Okay. Next up, I'm just continuing to go down this list. I'm at number 46 of 74. Whew, this is going to take a while, folks. Um, Matthias Kramer, who is a phenomenal Euro-style designer. He's produced some of the most creative, original designs out there. You know, Lancaster, Helvetia, Rococo, Glenn Moore. I mean, and don't get me wrong. I mean, he works within very well-prescribed um, gameplay mechanisms, but whenever he does one, he always does something new and interesting and different. He's got a new game coming out this year. It's called Dynasties. That's all I know. Matthias Kramer, new game, 
That's all I need to know. It's definitely on my list. Helms and Gluck, I guess, is going to be publishing it. So, it, you know, the jury's out. Will it actually be available in a language-independent version that we'll be able to play? I don't know. But Matthias Kramer, I'm always going to be there because I really enjoy his games. That is Dynasties. Okay. Next up, Vinos, the Deluxe Edition. This is a game that's actually going to be going on Kickstarter in January, and I'm very much looking forward. They're going to be sending me a prototype of this. It should be showing up any day now. Now, I did a run-through for Vinos a few years ago. That um, was Vito Lasardis. I already talked about him a bit earlier in this. You know, you know, Vito Lasardis, the king of the heavily thematic, super heavy Euro, uh, his first game, his first game of note was Vinos, a game about the wine industry where you were running multiple vineyards, trying to win in wine festivals, trying to impress wine experts, and also trying to manage your finances in uh, this really kind of clever worker placement game. Brilliant, brilliant design. It is now getting a deluxe edition treatment that's going to be coming out. And now the original game was already very, very deluxe. It was a gorgeous production. But this new one, I guess, is going to take it to an 11 with even better stuff. But the interesting thing is, this is not just a reprint, you know, a complete reproduction of the original game. Vital. Uh, who is now a much more experienced designer. You know, Vinos was his first game. He has now gone back and he is revisiting it and he is tinkering with it and he is creating a new version of it, which is going to streamline some elements because the original Vinos was very bitty. It, I mean, it had a lot of stuff going on. I don't know what the changes are, but I'm really excited to see if this was his freshman effort. Now that he is a senior, what is he going to go back as he revisits his early design? What's going to change? I don't know, but I'm very excited to find out more about Vinos, the Deluxe Edition. Although my understanding is, I believe, you can still play with the original Vinos rules, too. So you'll be able to play the original way or this cool new way. Should be cool. Can't wait to learn more. Vinos Deluxe Edition. Next up, we've got the Banner Saga Warbands. Now, I have to admit, I know almost nothing about this game. This one almost didn't make my list. I, I should have mentioned right up front, by the way. I'll just mention halfway through this. This geek list, my, my 2016 games of interest, whenever I see a game, I, I am constantly scanning the RSS feed for Board Game Geek. So whenever any new game gets added to the database, I get an email about it. And I go and I check it out. And so every single game Period. 100% of all games that get announced, I actually check out. You know, this takes a lot of time. And, um, and I'll tell you, I mean, heck, I just spent two hours this afternoon looking at the most recent, I think, 200 games that have been added over the last three weeks to Board Game Geek. It took me about two hours to go through all 200 games. Of those 200 games, three of them made it onto my geek list that were, they look so cool and so interesting that I decided, you know, I'm going to put them on the geek list. Now, on top of that, say another, it must have been like another 50 or so sound interesting. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool. Maybe I should check that out. And I don't put them on the geek list. I put them on my wish list and I rank them at level four, which is thinking about. And I subscribe to them and then I just sit back and wait for more information to come out, for the rules to get published, for more pictures to appear. And, you know, maybe somewhere down the road, uh, there'll be enough information that I can decide, hey, yeah, you know what? This does sound cool. I'm going to bump it up to level three, at which point I'll put it on my geek list. Or heck, maybe as I learn more, I'll be less and less interested and I'll just take it off my wish list. So I say all that as a precursor to the Banner Saga Warbands. This one, strictly speaking, that probably should have been a four 
thinking about it instead of three would like to try it because I don't know much about it. But here, just I thought that was a bit of interesting. I should have led with that. But anyway, the reason I did ultimately put it up to three, there's a couple of reasons. One, this is based on a phenomenally popular video game, the Warband Saga, which I believe was, all, was, was a big successful Kickstarter game. And I've never played it because I don't play video games these days anymore. But I know it was very successful, very well received, gorgeous, gorgeous game. Um which I think was about Vikings in a war band traveling throughout the world or something like that. But don't know much about the game. This is the board game version of it. And so I'm already interested because the, you know, the Banner Saga has already proven to be an interesting strategic video game. So right off the bat, strategic video games can get turned into interesting strategic board games. So uh, the original video game had phenomenal, gorgeous art. So it's likely the board game will have phenomenal, gorgeous art and components. And in fact, I'm very confident of that because this game is coming from Mercs. Now, Mercs um, make gorgeous miniature-based games. Most famously, Myth. And now, people who've watched my show, they know I had a huge problem with Myth. Myth was a brilliant... Or I should say Myth is a brilliantly designed cooperative miniature dungeon crawl adventure that suffered hugely from being released too soon. It needed another year of development. I'm very, very excited. I cannot wait for my Myth 2.0 rules. I backed Myth uh, to get the new rules. They should show up any day now because I believe they're getting shipped out to people. And I can't wait to revisit Myth and see if that additional year of development has ironed out the kinks to make it everything it should have been. But in the meantime, life goes on, and Mercs apparently got the uh, rights to make a game based on the Banner Saga. So here's what I know about the Banner Saga. Popular, well-received video game, gorgeous, gets produced as a cooperative, gorgeous miniatures game from a company that has proven they can make gorgeous miniature games, that has proven they can come up with really innovative, fresh, exciting designs, and has only faltered in the fact that they don't give design or you give their games enough time, enough testing. Now, what I want to do is I want to give Mercs the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to assume they have taken the experiences of myth and they have learned from it. They have grown. And I'm willing to give them a second chance and assume that the Banner Saga will actually be pretty f- phenomenal because they've proven their smart, clever design. Oh, one other thing. The, the people behind Merck's miniatures, they all come from the video game industry. I met them at Gen Con, not last year, but the year before. And I talked to them a lot about the development of Myth. And they seem like really smart people. And they did seem like they've learned a lot. They've taken a lot on board. And I expect they are growing as board game developers. But they come from a video game background. So who better to work on a a conversion of a very popular video game to board games than ex-video game developers who have made a very, very cool board game that captured the feel of video games so well? The only potential if is, did they learn their lesson? Has the Banner Saga gotten more testing? We'll find out. Should I have made it a four instead of a three? We'll see. But for now, it's on my list because if nothing else, I know it'll be gorgeous. So that is the Banner Saga. Sorry, I spent a little bit more time on that than I should have. But let's keep going to number 49. This is a simpler one. Lune Architects. 
This one went on Kickstarter. I did a run-through for a prototype of it. I believe it funded, and so it should be coming out in 2016. What is it? It is a reimagining of Matthias Kramer's Glenn Moore. And it basically took the ideas of Glenn Moore, but added a lot of cool additional extra stuff, like um, variable player setup, something Glenn Moore never had, but Jen and I love to death. It added um, variable in-game scenarios. So every time you play, you have different for targets for what you're trying to shoot for at the end of the game instead of Glenmore where it's you know well uh well, you, you, st- you can still get kind of variable ends in Glenmore, but you know this kind of pushed it to the next level. It also changed the setting from Scottish Highlands to a, uh, a moon base, which is kind of cool. Although, I'll be honest, I, I kind of like Scottish Highlands more, but I like the moon base thing as well. It also changed the fundamental game. The game is now a hex-based tile lane game instead of a quad or you know, four-sided tiles. So, anyway, long story short, it worked really well. And... Um, I'm just really happy for the designer because he actually went through a bit of a hard time trying to get this made. His heart was in the right place. There was quite a bit of controversy around the game, but I'm happy he succeeded. And the game itself was phenomenal. He did, I think. You know, he was obviously a huge fan of Glenmore. He never made a secret of that. Um, he took that, the ideas that were in there, built on them, made a, you know, a, a 2.0 of that that looks really phenomenal. Now, it's interesting. In the meantime, apparently, Matthias Kramer has said, oh, by the way, we are looking to reprint Glenmore. But who knows when that's going to happen? Maybe that'll happen in 2016. There's been no official announcements. Who knows what's going to change? But in the meantime, for people who have been jonesing for Glenmore for quite a while, Loon Architects look like it could be a very good option. And let's see, last up on this page, because then I've got a whole other page. Heck, I'm only halfway through this list, folks. Oh my goodness, how long have I been going here? 44 minutes! Oh, am I ever going to get to the Q&A? Well, but we're ringing in by talking about a whole bunch of exciting 2016 games. I think this is still appropriate. So, let's talk about Tiny Epic Western, which is the latest from designer Scott Alms and um, publisher Gameland Games, uh, the Tiny Epic series, which includes Tiny Epic Kingdoms, which I have to admit I never played, but for all reports, I think it's, it sounds like it's a very, very good little area control game. But we really, really enjoy Tiny Epic Defenders. And we really, really, really enjoyed Tiny Epic Galaxies. And we've liked a lot of Scott Alms' other games as well. And now their next one, Tiny Epic Westerns, is coming out. It's actually just going to be going on Kickstarter next week. I've got a prototype. Again, I'm looking at it right there. I need to get a run-through for this. And the thing is... It's funny, I have played Tiny Epic Western now several times over the last years. Every time I go to a convention, I keep running in to the Gameland Games guys, and they always say, hey, come play Tiny Epic Western. And I've seen it evolve um, through iteration after iteration and just get better and better and better. This game, I think of all the Tiny Epics, has had the longest development, and so the most love and attention. And so I think it has every... It has the potential to be Scott Alms' best game in the Tiny Epic series to date. And that's saying something, because Tiny Epic Defenders is fantastic, and Tiny Epic Galaxies is phenomenal. So, I already know it's a good game. I've played it several times. I have not played the final version of it, but I cannot wait to check out Tiny Epic Western. Okay, now we get to go on to the other page where it looks like I've got another 24 games of interest to talk about before we even get to QA. And um, Jen's finished with her, so I think she's ready to do that. So, tell you what, folks, I'm going to get a drink of water because this was 45 minutes of nonstop talking. I need to take a break. I'll be right back. We'll finish up these games of interest. And then I'll see if I've got the strength. Or heck, maybe Q&A will have to wait yet again. We'll be back shortly, folks. Hang on. 
Okay, I talked to Jen a little bit. She is still down for doing a Q&A. So, I, you know, it's it's getting late in the day here, folks. So I want to get through this. So I'm probably not going to spend as much time on this, my third page of stuff. But still, I'm going to go through. I'm going to get this finished. I'll start off 2016 right. But I guess this is going to be a pretty long podcast. Eh, sorry. Um, Let's keep on going. Next up, we've got Dingo's Dreams, which is a game, unfortunately, it was on Kickstarter last year that I did not get to do a run-through of. I would have loved to have done one, but they never sent me one along. But I'm still excited about it. It is a design joint effort from Alf Siegert, who has done several designs that Jen and I enjoy immensely. Cubist, Fantastica, Tale, uh, Road to Canterbury. Uh, working with designer-slash-artist Ryan Lockett, who has done some amazing games, Above and Below, and um, 8-Minute Empire Legends, and all kinds of really great games. And the two of them worked together on Dingo's Dreams, which is a game about a dreaming dingo trying to navigate a dreamscape um, with um, Alf's design and um, you know his kind of almost poetic elements he brings to his game, and Ryan's gorgeous gobsmacking art. I think that's a match made in heaven. I cannot wait to check out Dingo's Dreams. Next up, we've got Back to the Future and Adventure Through Time. And you know, heck, I worked in the video game industry for years. I know how you know having a big license, a movie license or a TV show license is always a red flag. And normally that means just a quick cash in, you know, um, you know, a, a B or a C team works on it, just bang something out because they've got to hit some deadline to release in time with a movie or whatever. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if this game was originally developed to try to come out last year because last year was Back to the Future year. It was 2015, the, the year that Back to the Future 2 predicted. So last year there was Back to the Future fever. And so I'm sure this game was supposed to come out, and it didn't make it because it's now coming out in 2016. So that's all red flags. Heck, it uh, must have been rushed to market, right? They didn't even make it in time, so they must have failed. So they don't even know what they're doing. It must be a terrible game. Well, you know what? I am not worried at all. I have seen no red flags because the fact that they were willing to wait... They didn't rush it to market, but they waited until the game was right. Um, instead of just you know trying to push out a substandard product, to me, that is a good sign. That means it's not a cash grab. But even more important than that, the designers are not some C-list, no-name designers. Um, this is coming from the designers of Fleet. And Fleet is a phenomenal game. And Fleet Wharfside is a fantastic game as well. And so, I suspect... You know, I mean, that... You know, that um, this is a game where there was a lot of love that went into the production. This was not a cash grab. And so I'm very, very excited to see what Back to the Future and Adventure Through Time brings. And that's why it's on the list. Now, let's move on to Clockwork Islands. This is a uh, worker placement game. It's set in some kind of steampunk universe. That's all I know. I don't have seen any pictures. I don't really know much about the mechanisms. I know one thing. It is from designer Don Lloyd. And designer Don Lloyd's previous game, Dark Horse, was a phenomenal dice worker placement game. And so, based on that pedigree and that pedigree alone, I am interested in Don's next game, Clockwork Islands. Can't wait to see. Let's move on to the next one, Hitler Must Die. 
which is a crazy title, but this is a cooperative game that is actually inspired by the real-world plot to assassinate Hitler from you know high-ranking members of the Nazi party, people who realized that what was happening in their country was wrong, and they were taking steps to try to end world... I mean, you know, there was actually a full movie about this starring um, Tom Cruise that didn't really capture... you know, didn't really do as well at the box office as it should, but I always thought it was fascinating. And now there's a full board game devoted to it, where, I mean, you're all involved in this clandestine plot from inside the Third Reich to assassinate Hitler. To me, that is a phenomenal, fresh, and exciting theme that I would love to play. And if that weren't enough, it is from designer Phil Dubarry, who is on a roll. He has made a series of phenomenal games. And so, I can't wait. This has been in development. This has been on my interest list for a few years now. I'm Fingers crossed. I'm hoping this is the one that finally, this is the year it finally makes it out. Because I'm really excited about Hitler Must Die. Next up, we have tramways from designer Albin Viard, who, uh, you know, this is a guy who started out doing fan maps for 18xx games, I believe, which, you know, means, you know, he's a really, really heavy, hardcore gamer. And, you know, and apparently he was having a nice little sideline making maps and selling them to folks on the side. But a few years ago, he put out a lovely little um, puzzle of a 3D city building game called Town Center, which I immediately fell in love with. I've still, and, he, and he's, uh, that thing has been reprinted several times. Every time it gets printed, it gets a better and better production. But since then, he has continued to build, to create this kind of Town Center series of games, all city building, and several of them have been really phenomenal. I mean, we own and love Small City. I mentioned earlier, uh, which is kind of like taking the ideas of Town Center, which was a simple little puzzle game where the town can kind of grow and expand on its own outside of your control, which is like the, the crux of all of these games, and um, but really built it up into a big, heavy Euro. He also did Clinic, which had the same basic idea, but instead of building a town, you're building a hospital inside the town, and but they were all still tied in the same world. Now, he's doing Tramways, which takes the same basic idea, but instead of building the town and letting it evolve on its own, you're building the transportation network, the transportation network inside the town. So that's a really cool a route building network, but not what we normally see, you know, getting back to these 18xx games or Steam or Age of Steam. This is building a rail transportation net, a, tra- a rail transportation network inside of a city. That right off the bat is very very cool and interesting, but the notion, I'm hoping, I don't know, but I'm hoping it continues with his his almost his fetish for these kind of puzzly euros where you 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 you're building and developing, you know, this thing, but it, you're doing it in such a way that it expands on its own. I've loved that every time he's done it, so I'm excited for Tramways his next game. Next up we have Victorian Mastermind. This is interesting because this is a uh, a big team up between two design powerhouses, Antoine Bauza, he of Ghost Stories and Seven Wonders and Takedo. And you know, I mean, I mean you know, this guy, I, you know, everything he touches turns to gold. And he's teaming up with Eric Lang, who has just, you know, last year he had XCOM, he had Blood Rage. You know, Eric has, is really on fire. So the two of these guys are teaming up to make a worker placement game set in, um, in, in, Sherlock Holmes, Victorian England, but you're not playing Holmes or any of Holmes' contemporaries. You are playing Moriarty-style supervillains. 
<laughs> in this worker placement game. And for whatever reason, Sherlock Holmes has disappeared. He's presumed dead. And so now all the supervillains have decided with the Holmes out of the way, London is ours. And we're all competing to carve up London for ourselves. Um, so it's an amazing theme brought about by these two amazing red hot designers working together. Tell me that's this is going to be a big deal, Victorian masterminds. Um, oh, and by the way, it's coming from Space Cowboys, who are on a roll because they had the amazing Splendor. They had la- uh, two years ago. Last year they had Time Stories, and now they're having Victorian masterminds. This could be a mega game um, for this year. Cannot wait to see more. Next up, we have um, In the Name of Odin, which is another Viking game. Vikings were big last year. It looks like it's going to continue into 2016. This one is from NSKN. It's a Euro Viking game, unlike, say, Blood Rage, you know, so, or, um, you know, what's it, uh, Champions of Midgard. So, NSKN, they are, you know, I've been very, very pleased with pretty much all the games they've been putting out. So I'm excited just based on publisher pedigree for this in the name of Odin. Continuing on, we have Dragon's Gate College. Now, the design duo uh, from this, um, who have previously worked on Yido, Y-E-D-O, and Shakespeare Must Die, these guys, this is their third big game together. And they have been doing phenomenal work. We enjoyed both of those games. Even though Shakespeare Must Die really didn't work for us because it really needed more than two players, Yido was a phenomenal game. We still have it. And now, these two guys are working, again, with NSKN, one of my favorite publishers, and they are doing a game, a, a, a dice drafting game, which is one of my new favorite designs mechanisms. Last year, we had a bunch of dice drafting games. It kind of came out of nowhere. Previous year, 2014, Panamax, suddenly I think made everybody realize, wow, dice drafting is really cool, even though it had been around previous to that. And so last year, we started seeing a bunch of dice drafting games. Now we're seeing another dice drafting game from NSKN, from, um, oh, Thomas and, what? I, I can't remember both of their names. But from this really great design duo who have um, you know put together a series game. Oh yeah, Wolf, uh, Wolf and Thomas, w- Thomas Van Ginst and Wolf Plank, Planka, working. Uh, you know, a good design duo working with a great publisher with a relatively new and still ripe for exploration game play mechanism, Dragon's Gate College. This one. If I knew a little bit more about it, I should have... The more I think about this, the more I should have put this in my top 25. I'm really kind of embarrassed I didn't. But anyway, let's move on because we're trying to get through these quick so we can get to Q&A. Big Easy Business. Another game from designer Scott Alms. Uh, It's about running a business in the Big Easy in New Orleans. And so, that's all I know. Um, That's all I need to know. Should be cool. Can't wait to find out more. Rococo uh, is getting its first big expansion. Rococo was a great game designed by um, oh the the Maltz brothers and Matthias Kramer. We liked it. The it's getting its first expansion, and so interested in that. That should be cool. Adding jewelry to an already lovely game about Victorian era dressmaking. Next up, we have the Exodus Fleet, which I don't know much about. It is a, it's from Tasty Minstrel Games though, and Tasty Minstrel Games they have. They have not put out a clunker for a while. They've got really good taste. Um, you know, whether they're putting out you know big 
um, you know, medium weight euros like your eminent domains and your gold west, or whether they're putting out smaller little quick micro games like Cthulhu Realms and Bottle Cap Viking, which was a very, very cool game that kind of didn't get as much love as it should have or dungeon roll. So they've been doing very, very nicely. Exodus Fleet is going to be one of their big games for 2016. It's a science fiction game about trying to build the best fleet to help humanity get off of Earth before it's destroyed. That's enough for me. I am interested in the Exodus Fleet. Moving on. Legacy Time Surge. Um, this is finally we get an expansion to Legacy Gears of Time. Or oh, I'm sorry, um, no, I'm sorry, not uh, finally we get. Uh, well, you get. Um, I, no, no, ah, I'm getting myself mixed up. I'm going too quick. This is not an expansion. Legacy Gears of Time already got its expansion, which I have to admit I haven't played yet. Was that Forbidden Machines is what it's called? This is Legacy, the card game. Uh, Legacy Gears of Time turned into a card game, which means it's still all about time travel and trying to manipulate the time stream to put yourself on top. But with new cool mechanisms, I'm very excited. Can't wait to find out more. Moving on, we have Saving Time, another time travel game. This one is about trying to fix a shattered time stream, which is constantly unraveling, and it's cooperative. That sounds very, very cool. It seems like most of the time travel games that have been coming out recently, there's been a spate of them, have been competitive. With the only big exception to that would be time stories. But that's less about the time travel and more just about this storytelling thing. It's, it's, it's less a time travel game and more of a Groundhog Day the game. And, you know, Groundhog Day is effectively kind of time travel, but not really. This um, saving time is more, it, it, it in theory has more of a time travel feel, and it's cooperative. So I'm stoked for that. Can't wait to find out more. Then we've uh, more in the case of saving time, which is a clever title as well. Then we've got HOPE, which I think is an acronym for H-O-P-E. I don't remember what that stands for, but this is a game where, once again, we are trying to save the human race by colonizing the galaxy. But what's cool about this game, and I actually got to see a prototype of it at Essen, when you look at the board, the board is a big... uh, It it, it shows three dimensions. There are three dimensions that you can travel between. And as you're traveling around the galaxy trying to claim planets uh, to score points and, and save the human race, the trick of it is, if you kind of squint your eyes and change your perspective, it used to feel like, oh, I'm traveling on this dimension. Let's call it the south dimension. But all of a sudden, I, and I'm in a little grid space, and but I can switch the I don't know what you call it. This is so hard to describe. You have to see this game to understand it. I can kind of switch the dimension I'm traveling in. And then even though I'm in the same place, now I'm traveling in a different dimension. And what used to be the floor is now the ceiling. What used to be the wall is now the floor. And um, it's all about just kind of you know adjusting your eyes so that suddenly the entire map feels like a completely different place, even though nothing about the map changed. It's a really cool gimmick. Um, but... From what I've seen, it sounds like a really cool game as well. So I'm very, very excited about Hope. H-O-P-E. Can't wait to play it. Okay, next up, we've got Four Gods. I don't know much about this other than it is a real-time game. And Jen and I, we tend to really enjoy these real-time games where you've got a timer and you're, you're racing against time. This is a tile-laying game, you know, which you say, oh, a real-time tile-laying game, does that mean it's like Galaxy Trucker? Kind of. The thing that's most interesting about this, though, is in Galaxy Trucker, everybody's building their own, their tile-laying in their own little section of the world. Here, we are tile-laying to build up a communal world. So the tiles I'm grabbing in real time and trying to place on the board to score points 
I'm building in the same place as you. So the, I think the race becomes even more interesting because we have a shared garden we're building in. So that should be very cool. So I'm very, very excited to learn more about four gods. Each player is a god building up the world in real time. Okay, next up, we have another real-time game, Admiral of the Black. Here's all I know. It is a real-time game. It is a cooperative game. It is a scenario-driven game, and it is a pirate game. You had me at cooperative pirates, but then real-time on top of it? Forget about it. Can't wait to know more. Oh, and then there's one more thing I forgot about it. The board itself, you kind of actually build up these 3D constructs to have. You have little 3D ships that move around on the board that I think kind of create different worker placement spaces that you're manipulating in real time. I'm basing all of this on a picture that I'm looking at right now. I don't know anything about this game, but I'm in. Everything about it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, so that is Admiral of the Black. Next up... We've got the latest expansion for Elder Sign, Omens of Ice. I put this on the list because actually Jen and I played Elder Sign when it first came out. Elder Sign is a cooperative Yahtzee-style dice game where players are um, investigators in the Cthulhu missiles, you know, kind of a Ar- Arkham Asylum type setting, and players are working together to try to save the world from the return of the old ones and all of that. And it's basically Yahtzee-style rolling specialized dice, trying to get patterns. And it was nice and thematic, and we enjoyed it. But at the time, we thought, eh, it's just kind of okay. And I got rid of our copy then. And then, over the subsequent years, Fantasy Flight has continued to put out expansion after expansion. And everything I've read is, yeah, the game started out okay, like we thought, and became awesome. Became full of the awesome sauce. And so I've been thinking for quite a while about, should we go back? Should I pick up another copy of Elder Sign and maybe some of these expansions, including the new one that's coming out this year, Omens of Ice? I don't know. You folks tell me. But it's on my list of interest. I really do need to look at it a little bit more. All right. Next up, five-minute delivery. Oh my gosh, yet another real-time game. Is 2016 going to be the year of the real-time game? I don't know. This one is uh, five-minute deliveries. It plays in real-time over five minutes because it comes with an audio soundtrack in much the same way that Escape, Curse of the Temple, famously came with the 10-minute track, and other games have since done the same thing. You know, Zombie 15 and all that. So here's another game that it plays in five minutes. You use an audio track to keep track of the state of the board as it um, evolves. And it's a, a game where we're trying to deliver stuff. You know, get your pizza there in five minutes or less. That sounds like a fantastic, phenomenal theme for this kind of real-time gameplay. So, it should be pretty cool. I am interested in five-minute delivery. Next up, we have 100 Swords. And this is interesting. I did a run-through. This is another one I did a run-through for when it was on Kickstarter, and we had a prototype of it. This is a, a 100 Swords comes with several different decks. Uh, like, there's a deck devoted to the Red Dragon and, the, and the, the Blue Mammoth and the Darkness. Each one of these decks is a standalone game where players are doing fast-paced, racing through a dungeon via deck building. It was really clever, very satisfying play, very fast, and we enjoyed it quite a bit. And this year, they're going to start releasing these games. Each one of them is a standalone game. Uh, where So you could buy the one that's devoted to defeating the Red Dragon or the one that's devoted to defeating the, the Darkness Monster or whatever. But you can buy several of these games and mix and match them. So I love that idea. It almost has this kind of old school... Well, it's like a living card game, deck builder. But um, you know, with really cute cartoony art and very solid, clever, fun racing mechanisms. Neat little game. Hundred Swords. Watch for it. And oh, I'm almost there. Almost there. Next up, we have Isle of Doctrine to Crow. 
the second edition. Now, I have had a copy of Isle of Dr. Necrow. Dr. Necrow was, uh, full disclosure, it has a soft spot in my heart because Pandemic was Jensen, my gateway game. And after we found it and fell in love with it, I immediately started going out and looking for other fun cooperative games. And Island of Dr. Necro was one of the first ones we found, and we, um, we really enjoyed it quite a bit. It's a lovely kind of Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers, Pulp Fiction, um, push-your-luck, dice-rolling adventure game. And uh, where you get to, every time you play, create a randomly generated, like I said, Buck Rogers-style adventurer with all kinds of cool special abilities as you race against time to save the kidnapped scientist from the Isle of Dr. Necro before it sinks into the ocean and Dr. Necro creates his super weapon. you got to get out alive. It had a wonderful theme. It was good, solid, fun gameplay. And it was the thing that actually we enjoyed most is a surprisingly um, tough, tough puzzle of game. Even though on the surface it looks like a really simple, just kind of press-your-luck dice-rolling chuck-em-up, there was actually a lot of fun strategy in it, and we still like it. The biggest problem with it was, it, um, well, there's two problems. One, it did not, it had really nice art, what was there, but most of the cards had no art. They just had text. So this second edition, finally it's going to get a big graphical overhaul and it's going to have the wonderful thematic presentation it always should have had. The other problem with it that it had was, like I said, it was a very challenging game and it was very, very difficult for people to get their head around the right way to play. So a lot of people dismissed it out of hand. The new version, I believe, is going to be tweaking the rules so it has kind of introductory versions of the game so that people can kind of get into it and learn how to play. Now, Jen and I were less interested in that. We're just more interested in having an updated version with really great art. But I hope the game gets more of an audience because it's always deserved an audience. But a lot of people just get put off because, because the game is very non-standard and very almost kind of counterintuitive in what you need to do to be able to win. And that's why Jen liked it. That's why a lot of people, and Jen and I liked it. A lot of people don't like it. Hopefully it gets a bigger audience with its second edition of The Island of Dr. Necro. Um, next up, we have another cooperative game, Beyond Baker Street. I did a run-through for this one. It was just a print-and-play, and, play, and um, it may be coming out this year. It may not. Uh, I've talked to the designer a bit, and they have high hopes that it will be out in 2016. This is a game that takes the basic idea of Hanabi, Another game from Anton Bowser, when I mentioned earlier how he's on fire and he can do no wrong, takes the idea of Hanabi, adds a bunch of cool new stuff to it, like you know, unique player special powers and whatnot. Basically takes Hanabi and sets it in the world, once again, of Sherlock Holmes. As it happens, Jen, I love the world of Sherlock Holmes. Heck, Jen has read the entire Sherlock Holmes omnibus, which means she's read everything Sir Car- Arthur Conan Doyle has ever written about um, the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So we like Sherlock Holmes, make no mistake. And so, taking Hanabi, which we really like, adding a bunch of cool extra features and kind of cleaning up some of the weaker elements of it, and then giving it a really strong thematic grounding, because Hanabi is a pure abstract card game. Supposedly it has you know this theme about creating fireworks, but it doesn't make any sense at all. Making it a mystery investigation game set in the Sherlock Holmes universe, it suddenly makes thematic sense, and so it improves on Hanabi in pretty much every way. So I cannot wait for a full retail version of it. Fingers crossed it makes it out this year beyond Baker Street. All right, um, almost there, folks. Just three more to go. Um, and these are the three that I discovered today. Remember I was talking earlier about how I spent three hour, two or three hours today looking for new games? I found these three just today. First one, Fire of Eidolon. 
And um, there's not much to say because really it just got added to the board game week just within the last few days. So there's not much information. I haven't seen any pictures. Here's why it immediately jumped to my I want to play this game. Um, it's you know the 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 pitch for this is it's a super small, very portable, cooperative dungeon crawl game with no dice. And now there are lots of dungeon crawl games out there, but pretty much 99.9% of them always just come down to roll to resolve games. This game revels in the fact. I mean, this is what they, they this is their big um, sales point is, yeah, look, it's a fast little fun, it sounds like kind of a little net hack style dungeon crawl game, but it's not about rolling dice and just hoping for the best, which Jen and I are almost always turned off by. This is a game where um, your ability to beat the monsters is based on your strategic choices through action selection and hand management, so I am super stoked for Fire of Eidolon. Can't wait to learn more, see what the art looks like, etc, etc. Then we have the North North Sea Rune Saga. And this is really interesting. This is a game from designer Shem Phillips. Although, actually, no, it's not a game. Shem Phillips last year put out a game called Shipwrights of the North Sea. And early this year, we are going to be, um, he's going to be delivering a game that was on Kickstarter last year, Raiders of the North Sea. And um, Raiders of the North Sea should actually be on this list. But I, I think people were getting their copies in late 2015. I don't think it's gone into retail till 2016, but people did get their Kickstarter copies on 2015, so it counts as a 2015 game. This year, he's going to be um, putting Explorers of the North Sea on Kickstarter, and maybe it'll come out. So he's got this series of three games, Shipwrights of the North Sea, Raiders of the North Sea, Explorers of the North Sea. All three of these games um, are part of the same trilogy set in this biking world and it's it's not a world of fantasy Vikings, but like real world Vikings, you know, trying to you know build up and and um, you know loot and pillage and and all of that with really gorgeous artwork. Now we played, we never played shipyards or shipwrights of the North Sea because it had this really mean streak to it. From everything I've read, it's a very nasty take that game. So Jen and I passed on it, but we really thought Raiders of the North Sea was a brilliant take on worker placement. Really, really wonderful game. Um, and really, it should have gotten more attention last year. I hope when it hits retail this year, people really, um, because you know it pretty much provides the experience that we would have hoped, that Jen and I would have hoped for from Champions of Midgard, but did not get. Raiders of the North Sea delivered on. And so based on how good that was, I'm very excited for Explorers of the North Sea, but that's all beside the point. And I think I... Ex- oh, yeah. And yeah, Explorers of the North Sea actually made it into my top 25. I was so excited about it, if I recall correctly. I recorded that days ago, so it's all a blur. But anyway, all of that was preamble. I'm here right now to talk about the North Sea Rune Saga. Because this is another this is another thing you can buy from Shem Phillips. What you have to do is you have to buy all three of the North Sea games, and then you buy this. And this becomes a meta game that turns those other three games into one big, long, epic super game where you play through all the other three games to find out who is the ultimate winner of the rune sea of the of, of the north sea saga um, in the north sea rune saga i don't know how this works but to me so this means this is something that you know shem had been planning every step of the way with all three of these games he, they are all part they are chapters of this big uber epic game that sounds so cool to me. So cool, in fact, that I am now halfway tempted to go back and check out Shipwrights because I just want to have this experience of these three separate games that all snap together like, cl- like pieces of a big, gigantic puzzle. 
I don't know how it works, but I'm super excited about it. I love the raw, unbridled ambition that this young designer has brought about. And I know it's going to be gorgeous because the, they've all been gorgeous. And I know one of them has a brilliant design. So, heck, probably they all have a really good design. So, the North Sea Rune Saga? Tell me that's not cool. That is uber cool. And now, last game, folks, um, before we go on to Q&A. And I just found out about this today as well. Oh my gosh. If I had known about this a week ago, this would have made it to, this would have been in my top 10 most anticipated games of the year. Probably would have been in my top five. I don't know if it would have been in my top one. I don't know if it would have surplanted Gloomhaven, but I think it has a very, very strong chance at my number two most anticipated game. This War of Mine, the board game. Now, video game fans, they might, that may sound familiar. This War of Mine is a little uh, one of these kind of indie games that came out recently. Hugely popular, got a lot of critical love, a lot of buzz. It as a video game, it and, you know the setting is a war torn modern world, modern world city that is you know ripped apart by war. And in this game, this is not a war game where we're soldiers trying to you know claim land and beat back the army and deal with all that stuff. We are just regular people living in this city trying to survive the middle of this war. And um you know and the thing about this this game is a what would you say? It is mature. And it's not a mature game in what mature normally means. Normally, when you say, oh, this is a mature adult game, generally that means, oh, it's an incredibly immature game full of sex jokes and or like just overt blood and stupid stuff. Normally, saying a game is mature means it's immature. This is a mature game in the true sense of the word because this is a very, very heartfelt, um, impassioned, and powerful game about the reality of war, of modern war, as you take on the role of just simple, normal people trying to survive. And um, like I said, the the video game, um, you know, even though I don't play video games anymore, it made such a big deal that I've already heard about it, and I've heard nothing but great things about it. And so now it's getting a board game version as well, which I think, from what I understand of the video game, it should translate to board game form very well, because it was already kind of a strategic resource game, and um, so it should transmit, and um, you know, this board game expands on it hugely. So, I mean, the, 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 the logline of this game is, in war, not everyone is a soldier. Just that is not to send, um, send um, chills down my spine. I am reminded of Freedom the Underground Railroad. I am reminded of last year's The Grizzled. Um... I I think this game, I'm so excited about it. Because, well, first, I, I expect it'll be a pretty solid game because, you know, that is a subject matter that is rife for strong. I mean, and really, I, what you need to do is you need to go to Board Game Geek and read the description of this game. I mean, it, it's actually a really long description. It talks a lot about the details of what's in this game. A lot of really cool, a lot of storytelling stuff, a lot of interesting resource management stuff, a lot of adventuring stuff. Um, and it's cooperative as well. So, sounds fant- phenomenal. But more than all of that, the fact that it is a game that actually has something to say that um, can in um, dare I say make us better people for playing it. Um, you know, it's edutainment without being an edutainment title. It's something that can just enrich us in addition to entertaining us. I think, from a little I know about now, it might be the most important board game that comes out this year, and I cannot wait to learn more about this war of mine, the board game. And that's it, folks. Um, there's, a, there's a good way to start off 2016 with, what was that, 49 games of interest. And if you want to know 25 more, go check out my top 25 most anticipated games video, which I put up a few days ago. Right, I am exhausted. 
But we'll be back with Q&A very soon. Hold on. Okay, everybody, welcome back. It is Q&A time. And let's see, how many emails do I have here? Mark has unread. There are 30, 38 emails that have been building up ever since early November. Uh, that if you have any questions for me or Jen, you can always send them to questions at rotto.com. And I promise someday we'll get to them. <laughs> and apparently today is the day I'm just going to be doing these first in, first out. I have to admit, I haven't even hardly looked at these. If you send an email to questions at rotto.com, I'm just going to dump it in a folder and then wait until, so I can be surprised, so we can have some of that spontaneous responses and Jen will be joining me. She is completely covered by beagles. Yeah. <laughs> so let's That's get how going. I like it. All righty. First up, honey pie. Yes, my love. Jason asks, let's see, where's the question here? Jason I, says a lot of stuff. I have seen these emails not at all. All right. Well, and I've hardly seen them. Okay. Da, da, da. <laughs> a recent podcast by other industry insiders raised a question you may have some insight into. Labor ethics in the gamer workforce. The big conventions, trade shows, seem to be powered by largely unpaid volunteerism. Gamers have a passion for the industry and publishers do what they can to express gratitude. But other industries pay sales, pay, pay sales and support staff to drive interest in sales. Is this relationship fair? What is your experience in the video game industry? I seem to remember previous abuse of overtime being discussed when big games like Star Wars Galaxies were in the works. Okay, well, that's a very... And then he has a part two. But, well, let's see. That's a big, broad topic, but unpaid game volunteerism, I think he's kind of... When, he, when you're talking about overtime in the video game industry on big games that's very very different than um i don't know uh tasty minstrel putting out the word to everybody saying hey we need somebody to man our booth if you come and work for at least five hours we'll give you free tickets to the show my understanding is that's pretty what my, pretty much what most board game publishers are doing with these kind of volunteer things i think in some cases maybe you'll get a hotel room out of it too if you get a particularly kind and gracious publisher but for the most part it's just free passes to the show but they are exhibitor passes which means you can get in at early hours and you have a lot more flexibility than somebody and heck sometimes these show tickets ain't cheap um my feeling is i don't think there's anything wrong with that it it, by definition if it's volunteerism then i don't know that you can be taking advantage of them because they were volunteers (laughs) as long as it's not a bait and switch and you know once they travel five hours to get to the thing and then you as a publisher tell them ha ha you have to pay for your tickets after all i don't really think it's there's there's a there's an issue there i didn't hear the podcast that talked about uh labor ethics in the gamer workforce i don't i don't know um let's see uh, you, you like i said you you kind of broached into a broader thing of abuses of overtime for video games well 
it is definitely true that in the video game industry, crunch is the norm, and it's absolutely insane. All employee, nobody, nobody makes overtime. Everybody has fixed salary wages, um, which you know often are good, but sometimes are are really crappy. And regardless, it is the norm for people to work sixty to eighty hour weeks for days or weeks or months. In my experience, sometimes even years at a time. And uh, that's just, that's the price of entry, which is why the video game industry has such a high burnout rate, uh, particularly amongst coders who realize, yeah, this is crap. I want to make games, but you know what? I think I'm going to stop doing this. Go work in the financial district and make twice as much and work normal 40-hour weeks. Um, yeah. Of course, they always dangle the the bonus or the royalties that you're going to get this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But yeah. How many games uh, actually achieve that? Very few. Very few. We've Although, been lucky. We've been lucky. We actually had or, a couple of pots of gold. Or my husband's very good. Well, it's or a, a common... I know. I I didn't make those games by myself. There, there was a team. But we all worked very hard. And in a couple cases, we kind of had the right game at the right place at the right time, which is what it comes down to. But yeah, it's it's very unfortunate. I mean, heck, we were just watching a show the other day, Adam Ruins Everything. Oh, yeah. Which was a wonderful show, absolutely, (laughs) very highly recommended. And he had a big thing about, uh, you know, labor practices in the workforce and how, you know, pushing your labor force to extreme overtime is incredibly counterproductive and it, you know, it's it's hugely wasteful. I largely agreed with it. I thought maybe it was a little bit naive some of the points he was making, but. Um, yeah, I don't think it's a particularly good or healthy thing that the video game industry does. But surely, the board game industry doesn't do anything like that. I mean, I know there are publishers out there, little one-man shops, who are killing themselves. You know, who basically take on, they get, they do some Kickstarter, they raise a lot of funds, and then, you know, they basically, their life gets consumed by trying to get this game out and having to work all kinds of crazy hours to deal with the Chinese publisher, or, you know, print houses and all that stuff. But, you know, that's what they sign up for. It's But, yeah, it's... There's nothing in the, I can't imagine there's anything in the video game industry that even holds a candle to the absolute insanity of the video game industry. Probably not. And the people that we've talked to who do volunteering at uh, the game booths are there because they enjoy demoing, they enjoy the interaction, they like helping out their friend, the publisher. And many of them do it year after year after year. So my feeling is if, it, if they were truly being taken advantage of, you could probably hook a fish once, but the likelihood of the fish coming back time and time again, pretty slim. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, actually, and Jen, you have some experience in this because you have not volunteered at somebody's booth, but you've been at somebody's booth and hung around with these volunteers. And yeah, they seem perfectly happy. Yeah, I mean, they're they're having fun. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't. I, I'm curious what that podcast is that brought this up. But yeah, I mean, volunteerism. Heck, if you're passionate, that's great. Right. So Jason's second question was. Totally changing subjects. Where do you see the boundaries of legacy mechanisms? Seems the average Euro is not conducive to it. I disagree completely, Jason. I think Agricola Legacy would be amazeballs. I can't even imagine how incredible that would be. Um, you know, starting out, making your, your little farm, and, and basically... You know, if, if if Pandemic Legacy told the story of 12 months in a year, Agricola Legacy could tell the story of 12 generations 
on this farm. You start out, you've got a little board, maybe it's agricola-sized, and it's the first-generation mom and pop, and they build up a certain way, and then you, 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 you win, you, you play the game like normal, but then you're going to play again, and the second time you play, you're going to start where you left off from the first one. But now the kids, whatever kids you had, have grown up. So the more kids you have, the more workers you'll have the second time you play. The less, the less. Um, something, you know, there will probably be some rules for having changed the board a little bit because, hey, you know, 20 years have passed. So, you know, you get to, of all the things you put on your farm, you get to keep two of them. And so, but then the, the rest of the farm resets and new things have been added in. Over time, you can put add-on boards, much like... Agricola, the, you know, all creatures great and small, so the board can become bigger and bigger over time. I could see that totally working, and that would be an incredible experience. Well, and it would be more true to life in that, you know, some of your soil is has been depleted because Ooh, you farmed yeah. it too heavily. And yeah. that would be part of, you know, what your parents did. Well... Crap. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the choices you made earlier on can, I mean, if you over farm now, your kids have to deal with it. Yep. And there's technological breakthroughs as, as new things become available that are hidden in those boxes. Yeah, I think I, the sky's the limit. I, I, I think pretty, I can't, I'm looking at my wall of 300 some games. I can't, I don't see a single one that wouldn't benefit or be compatible with legacy style metagaming, where the, the end result of one session directly affects and influences, you know, uh, uh, the 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 gameplay of another session. Adding new stuff in, taking stuff away as time passes. I I think it's amazing. I where where is my you know, Lookout Games, give us Agricola Legacy. Uwe Rosenberg, get to work on it. It would be amazing. <laughs> okay. Yes, but that would also mean that we'd want to play 12 or 15 games a lot and mm-hmm. not 300 <laughs> in a year. That's not necessarily a bad thing either. I'm sure Jim would actually prefer that, quite frankly. In some cases, I might. Yeah. I mean, I suppose we have a very odd play yeah. style because of well, now you've, all the reviews. But You've mentioned in the past how you kind of regret this whole thing <laughs> I'm doing a little bit in that before I started doing Rotto Runs Through, you know, we could play a given game five or ten times a year. Now I play it twice and then it goes on the shelf and we'll be lucky if we play it one more time for the rest of the year. Yeah. Just because of the unique circumstances, because I'm always having to play the newest and latest. Um, I mean, Pandemic Legacy, to be able to do a video for that was a very unique circumstance where we actually played that thing 14 times. Yeah. Although that was hard, too. It was certainly not easy for us. I mean... And also, it was a bit cramming because we had to continue on. We couldn't really savor it as much as I would have liked to. Well, but that makes no sense to me because you love binge-watching shows, you sure. love just, okay, let's just see the whole season over like three nights. That's but, and that's pretty much what we did with Pandemic Legacy. But, and then you always say, oh, but I want to savor it. Why don't you want to savor Downton Abbey or something like that? And you want to watch them all at once, back <laughs> well, to back. I'm, I'm savoring our new game that we're playing with Angela and David. Yeah, yeah. So well, I get the best of both worlds. There you go. Well, anyway, there you go. That was Jason. That was question number one wow. of 38. Question number two from <laughs> Christopher. Uh, let's see here. Oops. I'm in the wrong directory. What am I doing here? I have no idea. All right. Hold on. Oh, no. Oops. Crap. I don't have, I don't have it sorted by date. How did that happen? (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, it's all messed up. All right. Here we go. Actually, Jason should have been question number seven. All right. Let's start over here. Question number one from Matthew. Do you play any board games on your iPad? Recreations of physical board games or digital only games like Hearthstone or Soulforge? If so, could you share your thoughts? Answer, no. We've played a couple things on our iPhones. Yeah. When we've had a local 
Can what I did we play? We played we played a lot of San Juan on iPhone when that first came out. But honestly, that was not because we were in love with playing games on our iPhones. That was because when that came out, we were traveling around a bit. Exactly, yeah. Spending some time on trains and things. Yep, yeah. So, um honestly, I think San Juan on the iPhone is the only it might be the only game that's gotten any kind of significant playtime from us, period. Uh, and it's just because, I mean, we don't want to play digital versions of games. We like playing the actual physical version. We'd rather sit at a table together rather than sit on the couch together. Um, we sit on the couch together plenty just to watch, well, to binge watch plenty of TV shows, <laughs> as uh, I mentioned in the previous question. So, um, yeah, and... I have to. I've talked about this in the past, but ever since I've gotten into board games, I've just completely fallen out of love with video games. Even though I've been playing video games religiously since I was like four years old, back in the seventies, when I discovered Pong. Um, video games are kind of dead to me now. I've, I've. It's really very hard for them to give me any kind of interest at all, and I think Jen's pretty much the same. Yeah. So yeah, sorry, Matthew. Don't really have much more to say about that. But there you go. Moving on to question number two from Isaac. Let's see here. Blah blah blah. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Show's great. Love the show. All that kind of stuff. very nice. I don't mean you know. But yes, where's the actual question? I'm I'm, I'm just scanning it, looking for the question mark. Um. Oh well. Okay. I'd like to know what TV shows or movies are begging to be made into a Euro-style board or card game. Perhaps even a top ten you wish to be made into Euro, rather than an American-style dice checker with minis and so forth. Would love to hear your answer. Okay. Um. That's a tough one. Oh. Oh. And he has a PS as well. Um. Okay. But anyway. I wonder if you want not do some like actual segment. On, What's that? On big questions like that, because that's those are that's a big question. Isaac, that's a good question. That's a tough one. I don't want to give you a half-assed, off the top of my head thing. So you know what? That is that would be a good top ten topic. I'm going to go on ahead and put that topic on the list of requested top ten lists. Every month, my voters get to vote on whatever top ten topic I'm going to do, and you know the choices they choose from or from a randomly selected from a list i'm going to put that on the list and we'll see if that gets covered someday in the future because that is a good topic and really to answer well i'd have to think about it long and hard so i am going to punt the question but thanks for asking isaac i have absolutely no input on that and jen has no input whatsoever (laughs) um right so next up from jared well first of all can we expect to have podcasts beyond the initial 12 i don't know we'll see um that's it's too early to say. Ask me again in April when we're doing the Kickstarter. Let's see. But here's the here real questions. Wonder. Right. Um, what questions are we playing in Shadowrun Crossfire? How much karma do we have? What upgrades uh, we have? Well, we have only been playing the same characters since I I've actually dabbled in all the different types of characters, but the only ones we've been playing consistently are Jen's Big Troll and My Little Dwarf. These are the characters that we used in my original run-through. We've just continued to play those, and we actually did suffer a bit of a setback because we were up in our 30s, um, in in the low 30s, like uh, 32 or 33, I forget, 
But then I found out I had been making a mistake uh, in terms of how we actually earn karma. And I had been earning more than we were supposed to. And so I had to retroactively pull back. And so now we're actually kind of, as it turns out, in our 20s. And uh, to be honest, that kind of cooled our enthusiasm for continuing to play. Just because, you know, we, we had all this stuff and then we had to take a step back. So we haven't been playing recently. And um, which is too bad because the the new expansion came out and I really, really enjoyed all the new stuff in it. But, you know, we've kind of put it on the shelf for a while. You know, plus, you know, I was gone for almost an entire month in November and December. So we just haven't gotten quite back into it. And it seems like every time we sit down and we have just like a quick 20 minutes to play a game, Jen just always wants to play Roll for the Galaxy and use the am- the ambition so I imagine once Jen gets the ambition expansion for Roll for the Galaxy out of her system, we'll finally be able to get back to sh- to Shadowrunning and getting back up to where we were. But oh yeah, that was ah oh, that that was just that was quite a because we worked hard for that ten or so karma and we realized that we'd kind of not really gotten it. Um, oh, also, what ratio of wins and losses do we have? We are getting to almost well before we were kind of cooled on the game again. Almost 50-50. Maybe 40-60-40% wins. And um yeah, I mean, but I mean, I guess that's not to be that's not surprising because effectively we were playing it on an easier difficulty level because we should not have been earning full karma because we should have been earning less. So I, I think when we get back to it, we'll probably go back down to 30% wins. My wife and I are struggling with winning, and we've won about four out of 11 with two successful boards. Actually, four out of 11 with two successful boards, that's really good. I think you're actually doing pretty well. Um, Although, if you stick with it, I mean, someday you'll get as good as the designers who get pretty much a 90% win ratio, and they have to artificially increase the difficulty of the level to get down to the, the levels that we all play at. But that's pretty much where we are now, Jared. And thanks for asking. Let's see, I don't think Jen... Yeah, she doesn't really have anything to add about that. She would rather talk about um, uh, Roll for the Galaxy, if anything. So, moving on to Jared. What do we got here? Uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry. No, that was Jared's question. Oh, hey, look, I had a copy of Jared, so we have one less question. Hooray. Oh, I had three copies of Jared for some reason. Ooh, all right. We've we've moved forward significantly. Let's move on to Phil. All righty. Oh, on your sixth podcast, you said Magic the Gathering helped you buy your house in Oregon. Can you talk a bit more about that? Also, can you uh, tell us a bit about what you did while working at Nintendo? Thanks for the shows. Okay. Uh, Magic the Gathering. We got into Magic the Gathering. I got bit hard by that. It was awesome. It was third edition time. I totally missed second edition. Totally missed all the moxes and all that. That was kind of a bummer. And the Black Lotuses. We got hardcore into it third edition. And Jen really loved it too. I mean, we got into it in the same way that we have now gotten into modern board gaming. And we didn't know we didn't know Settlers of Catan existed or Puerto Rico or any of those games that were you know big deals in the 90s. Had no idea. But a friend of mine at work um, who was it? Uh, oh, Graham Bayless. Yes. Mm. Graham Bayless 
Awesome. Uh, a video game guy back when I worked in the video game industry. He introduced me to it, and we got so hardcore fell in love with it that I got myself a retailer's license so that I could buy cases of magic in bulk from wholesalers so we could basically get them at discounts. How did you get a real? You mean you I don't even remember how I did it, but I, I had to do something, and so I got a retailer's license in the state of Washington. Now, this is before the internet, yeah. um, but somehow I figured out how to do it so that I could order cases in bulk. And so we, we ordered a bunch of third edition. We ordered a bunch of Fallen Empires. That was a mistake. I mean, we've still got several cases of Fallen Empires in the attic or you know, in, in storage at your sister's in, yeah, in the States. So. Yeah. Um, maybe someday they'll be worth something. But anyway, and, um, you know, and, I, and I got a bunch of cases of Ice Age and fourth edition. And around that time, we were looking to move from Seattle to Bend, Oregon. And so you know, we'd found the house we liked. We, um, you know, we, we had enough money for the down payment. Everything was fine. And Jen would have to say, what? I don't remember what happened, but there was some weird thing that happened in the 11th hour. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we had to pony up like an extra two grand for the down payment that we weren't originally going to have I to think pay. It was something like eight grand or something. It was something crazy. Crazy something. Jen would know why. I what happened? I don't even remember. I mean, that was so long ago. Yeah. Okay. This was a long time ago, but something happened. And suddenly we, we were on the hook for a heck of a lot more than what, what had originally been agreed upon. So what did we do? I sold a lot of third edition. You know, I mean, basically, I think if I recall correctly, I was I was making about triple what I had paid at the time. So I, I don't remember the numbers at all, but it was something like, hey, I was I was paying two hundred a case or a hundred a case or fifty a case and selling them for one hundred fifty or three hundred or five. I forget what it was. Was it on eBay even? You were um, well, how did I even sell these? Because this was back when in the days of Scry magazine, and I subscribed to Scry, and I kept thorough records of all our um, mm. cards, and I had a, a thorough understanding of exactly how much my collection. I don't, I don't remember anything about how I sold them. Maybe I sold them to local game stores, um, well, you know, because because they had. They, I remember they had like doubled or tripled in value just in the, you know in in the year that I had held on to them. That may be, but we were also doing tournaments and stuff too. So probably people were yeah just buying them from you there. Yeah, I honestly, I cannot remember, but I remember that um, we needed the money and I had every intention of, you know, holding on to those things for years. I mean, and selling them like now <laughs> when God knows what, uh, you know, a case of third edition would be worth today, but we needed the money to complete that down payment. And so Magic the Gathering saved the day, um, you know, pl- plus uh, some help from from family and whatnot. Think, yeah, we got a little loan from my dad. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, we, we paid it right back off, but we would not have been able to do it if I had not made that huge investment in magic and then been able to flip it for triple yeah. or, or whatever it was. So that was basically the story of Magic the Gathering. And then also, what did I do working Nintendo? Well, when uh, I was at the University of Washington and studying for my scientific and technical communications degree, mm-hmm. i.e. I was going to be a technical writer, I had a part-time job, as did, as did many other students at the University of Washington Nintendo, as a gameplay counselor. And now again, this was early 90s. This was long before the internet, long before GameFAQs.com, when if you were stuck in a game on your Nintendo Entertainment System, you called a toll-free 1-800 number and talked to a gameplay counselor like me. And I would walk you through how to find the Eye of Ganon in the seventh <laughs> dungeon of the uh, of Legend of Zelda, or where how to get to the Maui. I could still, to this day, tell you from memory how to get to the Maui Maui Ball in <laughs> Metroid because nobody could find that for some reason. And it was a great part time job for a student. And you know, so I was doing it. And I have to admit, I. 
you know, I, I was a straight A student in high school because high school was so easy. Um, you know, I never had to study. I would always just, you know, write. Um, I, you know, if, if I had a paper due in English, I was writing the paper in uh, my math class, which was just the period before. It, it, school was just was just a cakewalk. And my mom always warned me, you know, if you don't buckle down and really learn how to study, you're going to be adrift in college. And I was. I, it turns out I was a terrible student, and college <laughs> was really hard, and they just didn't give me easy A's anymore. Um, so, yeah, I, was, I, I did not have a good time uh, in college. So I found more and more, ah, you know what, ah, you know what this... This quarter, maybe I'll take a few less classes and do a little bit more work because at, at Nintendo. And pretty soon it was a full-time job and I was a college dropout. And I ended up working at Nintendo for three years. Started out just doing gameplay counselor, which is basically customer service, but the coolest customer service job in all of customer service history. And uh, you know, I ended up being an editorial assistant on Nintendo Power Magazine. I ended up doing a lot of testing on a lot of games for the, for the Super Nintendo and the Game Boy. I, for a while, I worked in the warehouse. Um, you know, I, I just did all kinds of jobs there uh, until the day I got fired. <laughs> which is like a whole nother story, but that's a story for another day. And that's what I did at Nintendo for about three years. All righty. Um, next up, Jason. Wait, oh, now, now, now Jason's question. I already asked Jason's question about um, work industry stuff. Let's see here. Moving on to a question from Susan. Hi, Susan. Let's see. I watch your video games a lot and have heard your... Uh, I know that we all open a box of freaky ideas. What game has surprised you the most? Well, Susan must have written this question. Yes, she wrote it back on November 4th. Subsequently, I did a top 10 videos of surprises. So, Susan, I'm sure by now you have already seen my top 10 surprises video. Honey, do you ha- can you think of any game that surprised you? <laughs> no, she says. I was going to sneeze, but um, no. Well, you know what? Um, I am eventually going to have to revisit top tens, and that will include top ten surprises. So, well, we just recently played a co-op game that I was surprised I liked. Okay, you were, played that? a co-op game that yeah, was surprised you like. Help me out here. Last week. Last week, you liked it. Why were you surprised? What did you expect? Because I don't normally like co-op games. Yeah, you do. And we, well, Oh, yes. Jen, she loves the idea of co-op games. But they but, tend to swamp me. Yeah, I mean, co-op game, I've talked about this before. Pandemic is the perfect co-op game because it has this wonderful modulation of tension that, you know, it starts out easy, then it gets really hard, but then it gets easy again, and then it gets hard and creates this roller coaster. Whereas most co-ops follow the the pattern of ghost stories where it starts off tough and it just gets tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. And it just never lets up uh, because that's how it creates the tension and the difficulty and all of that. And so we, and so often Jen finds she just does not respond well to that kind of heavy tension in co-ops. And so Jen is pointing out that, yeah, recently we played a co-op that did that and she was able to weather the storm. Now, I have no idea what she's talking about. Well, what co-op did we play last week? We played like five games a week. I don't remember. This is exactly right. I don't even know the names of the games we play sometimes. All right. I'm impressed Let's see. I remembered a co-op. That- what game? Well, I mean, I mean, you don't remember anything about it. What? Um, let's see. All I can think of is what we just played like in the last two days. But you got Oh, 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 yes. Um, 
Yes, and you were. That's true. You were very surprised by it. And honestly, I was surprised because I thought you were going to hate it too for that exact same reason. I also thought you were going to hate it because it was a game where you were running around with a gun shooting at stuff. Oh, yeah, it was the laser gun. It was Apocalypse yeah. Chaos. Yep. Apocalypse Chaos surprised the crap out of Jen um, <laughs> because it is a very intense, in-your-face um, you know, they are, you know, the bad guys are laying it on thick and they do not let go and it just gets worse round after round after round. And if that weren't enough, you're, it's a basically a, a you know, def- defend your fortress t- style game and you're running around with a gun shooting at these bad guys. It was a laser gun. Okay, yeah, I guess that's why Jen liked it because it was a laser gun. It's a science fiction gun. The game doesn't go into particulars about what the gun shoots. <laughs> um, I, so I guess it's open to interpretation, and Jen has chosen to interpret it as lasers. But yes, so Jen was very, very surprised by Apocalypse Chaos. And in the meantime, Susan, hopefully you've seen by now my top ten surprises. Although Apocalypse Chaos surprised me. I'm actually going to be doing a run-through for it in January. Really, really good game from Z-Man Games. Kind of flew under the radar. Didn't really get a lot of attention because it had the bad misfortune of coming out at Essen at the same time that pandemic legacy did so that was a bit of bad luck for them but a really really neat game and a big surprise thanks for asking susan now let's move on to the next question from sylvan all righty two two sections questions can be found in bold oh my gosh he's written quite a bit here wow i'll have to come back to all of that but fortunately he bolded the questions so sylvan i'll i'll read the 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 rest of the your post later but for now let's see since I am thinking to get involved with a podcast YouTube channel, what type of equipment do you use? Mic editing software camera. Well, I'm glad you asked. I recently created a new geek list on Board Game Geek called, um, you know, which is a frequently asked questions. And this is a surprisingly frequently asked question I get. So you can go to faq.rado.com and get the answer. Although, uh, short answer is my camera is a Sony PJ650. The mic is some no-name lapel mic I bought off eBay for 20 pounds. And the editing software is none. I film and I upload. If I ever have to edit anything, I just use YouTube's editor, which is youtube.com backslash editor. And it's a terrible editor, which is why I try not to edit stuff very much. Next question. Pandemic Legacy was a huge hit. What game would you like to see get the Legacy treatment and why? Well, I just talked a few minutes ago about Agricola Legacy. Can you think of a Legacy game you would love, Honey Pie? I think uh, Dungeon Pets. <laughs> my standard well, yes, or- yeah, because Dungeon Pets is one of Jen's favorite <laughs> games. I mean, honestly, easiest answer for that is whatever our favorite game is, we would like to see a Legacy version of it. So Jen would love to see a, ver- a Legacy version of Dungeon Pets. And heck, even... Would you like to see a legacy version of Roll for the Galaxy? I don't know. One of the things that I like about Roll for the Galaxy is that you can start and and do a quick game, and then next time you start and do another quick game. Fire and forget. You don't have to think about what happened. All right. So that's interesting. I guess maybe Jen has stumbled across a genre of games that would not do well, to answer the earlier question, with the legacy treatment. Filler games. Quick little pick up, play, and walk away games because that's what Roll for the Galaxy is for us. But um, yeah, Dungeon Pets, Agricola. Like you wouldn't want to do Escape Legacy or something. Oh, I don't know. I think Escape is. would be a Legacy would be awesome. Escape Curse of the Temple Legacy would but be. How would, would you be, do it? Well, I mean, because uh, the Legacy element would be less about that. You're always going in, but you yourself as a character would grow. I mean, what's it? Um, 
um, Shadowrun Crossfire is effectively a legacy game because we put those stickers on our characters. Yeah. And our characters change and grow over time. And we have to put those stickers on, and they're permanent. You know, it's not like a temporary thing where, you know, so we have to think hard. I mean, that's why you've been really hesitant to to go back in because you're okay because we we are ready to do another level up and just like oh i have to think about it it's really tough because you put a sticker on and it's forever and it's a tough tough decision (laughs) i I think that would be awesome that we you know we really kind of grow and develop a character and we just keep playing them and and you know and so as our characters get tougher and more powerful we have to increase the difficulty um as we play subsequent games of escape i think escape curse of the temple would work great for a legacy format i mean in escape quest in the quest expansion they introduced the notion of special player powers so the notion of if you know every time we got out of escape you have your player board that um you know at the beginning it's it's, it's just regular it, you know, he's just a regular character. You start with your five dice. You have no special abilities. But for every fifth game you win of escape, or that you that we actually win, you you will have scored five points, and that means you can get another upgrade, a permanent upgrade. Start with six dice. Start with you know these special quest powers. Um, or every time we lose, if we lose three in a row, we get a scar, and it becomes a, a thing where you know like one of those curses becomes. We always have to start with this curse every single time. The first thing we start is with a curse. <laughs> Um, or we always start with an extra treasure that you know because it's a treasure that we found, mm. and we get to keep it. We don't lose that treasure. We always have that treasure every time okay. we start. Yeah, that would be that. incredible. Okay. You can't tell me that wouldn't be awesome. So okay, I want to see Escape Curse of the Temple legacy treatment. Alrighty. All right, that would be. Oh, I am so pumped for that. That would be amazing. All righty, this one will be a tough one, honey. Since you are a nice guy, which game designer would you like or love to play a game with? Oh, I don't know. Um, that's a tough one just because, uh, let's see. Honestly, I don't want to play games with anybody other than Jen when it boils right down to it. I play, and don't get me wrong, I enjoy playing games with people, but I am hardcore into board games. I talked about this in the past because it's a great experience I play with Jen. I don't think I would, I don't think Rotto Runs Through would exist if board gaming were a hobby that I did where, hey, once a week I go out and play with all my buddies down at the local pub and Jen doesn't really care about gaming, I, I, I wouldn't be anywhere. I mean, it'd be fun. I'd still enjoy it. but I mean, you used to play games with the guys from work. But but that was because I was there at lunch anyway, so I had to do something. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything you've ever gone out to do at night. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, that's tough. I mean, that's that's the same kind of question as throughout all of history. If you could play a game with anybody, who would you want to play with? Um, I, I don't know. I, I I tend to think about it. It really is more of a question. It's really the question is who would you like to sit down for an hour and have a chat with? Um, and I don't know enough about any board game designer to be able to say, well, who would I enjoy having a chat with? I mean, I could say Stefan Feld because he's my favorite designer, but he barely speaks English, so that would be terrible. <laughs> I've actually met him, and, and his English is so bad. He's a, a brilliant designer, and you know, Jen could say Vlada Shavadl because she loves dungeon pets, but you know. When Jen actually met Vlada Shavadal at Essen, and I said, honey, this is the guy who made Dungeon Pets. She said, oh my God, I love you, and gave him a hug. And he was visibly recoiled, because like, <laughs> ah, who is this strange little blonde lady giving me a hug? And, you know, and so... Yeah, I think I did maybe shock him a Yeah, lot. you kind of, yeah, that was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, we're I Americans. Jen a, hugs people. I have a great affection for the creed. Yes, so, yeah, I don't know. It's tough, but not because I have to pick only one, but just because, I don't know, none of them are Jen. So I, I, I can't really answer that question. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Sylvan, but hopefully the other question answers were, were good. All righty. So let's move on to 
Yeah, because we had all those doubles. We're actually making good time now, Honey Pie. Mike asks, let's see. Oh, you know what? Oh, no, no. Let's see. Now, this is this is a tricky one. Uh, I, I put this one aside. He sent it to questions, but he didn't have a question. This was a guy, actually, I remember I forwarded it to you. Mike was really taken aback by um. a couple of podcast ago when Jen and I talked openly about a lot of uh, somebody asked a personal question and we talked a lot about you know our, our oh, relationship our feelings about parenting even though we're not parents and so therefore we don't have a leg to stand on and all <laughs> kinds of stuff and um you know and I, I set this aside because at the time I was thinking man you know I mean Mike was very very bothered um, you know, really very deeply um, by some of the stuff I said because maybe I mean, because maybe I, we sounded a bit cavalier, um, you know, about about some of our attitudes, and you know, maybe we weren't as educated as we could have been about you know parenting techniques and stuff like that, and um, you know, and and really, long story short, Mike felt you know he he, he loves. Rado runs through. He loves Rado. Talks through. I mean, he was not a dick about it at all, but he just no. wanted to get off his chest that he, you know, it, it, you know, um, felt it wasn't an appropriate. Yeah, form. and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so, I'm, Mike, I'm really sorry if me talking about this stuff. Oh yeah, and what he was really upset about was when I said again, very, you know, very brazenly, um, you know, if you're going to have a kid, try to find a way to make the marriage work. Don't split up. Do what you can, because that's what my parents did. My parents had a very, very hard time getting together. But I grew up a very happy childhood because I had no idea that, um, you know, you know how unhappy my parents were in their marriage. But, you know, however bad it was for them, they found a way to make it work. And my brother and I had a very good, stable home life. And the instant we were out of the house, boom, they got divorced. And, you know, and because they made that sacrifice for us. And, you know, and I always compare that to, contrast and compare that to Jen. You know, her parents got divorced when she was eight or nine or 10 or something like that. Seven. And, you know, it had a huge impact on her. And, you know, it affected her well into her 20s. And, you know, I've met, I both, I know Jen's mom. I know Jen's dad. They are wonderful people. And, you know, I don't know anything about the situation that they were in, that they felt that they had to split, and it had such a huge, damaging impact. And I'm sure they knew it, and I'm sure they thought about it, but they had to do what was right for them because I guess at the end of the day, they felt that they could not create a a home life that would have been conducive to a happy childhood for Jen and her sister Becky. Um, and so they felt it was the right thing to do. And you know what? In all honesty, Mike, you're right. It is not my place to judge them for that choice they made. And in all honesty, Mike, if you go back and listen to the original podcast, I wasn't judging anybody. I do not judge Ed and Emily for the choice they made. Um, and um, I think um, you know, Dick and Bobby, my parents, were heroes for the choice they made. I guess I would amend what I said earlier because, like I said, it really kind of um, you know it hit my card. Um, I, I think single parents are heroes too. Um, all I would, I, I guess, I would amend what I said earlier, folks. Don't go just directly to divorce because it's not working out. Try to find a way to make it work. 
don't just go straight to divorce because divorce is now so common. That's what I was really talking about when um, all these months ago when I brought it up. So anyway, Mike, I'm sorry I made you upset. But Mike, I just wanted to say, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about any of these other ones. But it, take some solace in the fact that while you yourself were made very uncomfortable with that, I know I got so many responses, including from the uh, response from the person who had actually originally asked the question and, um, you know, talking about that and providing a, a platform for an idea that is definitely counter to modern culture. Modern culture says, yeah, just, you know, get divorced if it doesn't work out. I mean, you know, that's, and, um, oh, and, you know, and the other thing, you know what, if, if you can't have kids, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. The fact that Jen and I spoke about this and we kind of provided a counterculture example and perspectives, you know, I still stand by what I said. I'm sorry I made you upset. I would like to amend that. So that's why I set this aside. No questions there, but let's move on to hopefully some happier topics. From Greg, who has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven questions he would like to ask. Oh, Greg, you're killing us. But um, Jen would like to say, yes, honey, I want to say that the original question poster did actually get back to us and say that our response was very helpful and actually made him feel much better. Yeah. Um, and just having alternative ideas out there makes you feel like you're not alone and that there are, there's hope for other aspects and different avenues that your life can proceed. And so I think if it made Mike uncomfortable, it made the original asker very much more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And, and then we had a spectrum of other responses. Yeah. So I think it was still well worth answering. Yeah. But yeah, long story short, Mike, uh, I'm sorry. I certainly didn't mean to cast aspersions. So moving on to Greg and his 50,000 questions. All right, here we go. Um, Although, wait, Jen is walking away. Why? Where are you going? I got to go turn off the oven. Uh, Jen is also making dinner right now, and she just heard the oven oven beeping. Um, But anyway, so. All righty, let's go with Greg. Regarding your hellish trip to Essen. (laughs) <laughs> wouldn't that have been more fun with some kids tagging along ha oh greg you are silly all right um that was obviously a trick question oh you led me along the garden path there greg um oh greg honey is worried about the mold in our game collection um let's see uh, are are you sure your mold situation is okay it can get out of hand pretty quick we uh, what what game did we open up the other day? Oh, we got out um, Legends of Andor the other day because I brought back the expansions from BGGCon, and so we were we were playing with the new heroes, and I got out Legends of Andor and opened a bag, and yeah, we have a mold issue definitely going on because it was a bag that had like all the player character standees, and it had the character dice. And the dice were covered with mold. No, they weren't covered. There was a little bit of mold on one of the colors. Yes, on, on two of the dice. They were they had a lot of mold on them. And then, but all the characters were totally fine. They had no mold. So I guess like this plastic treated cardboard must be mold resistant. That wouldn't surprise me. Remember we just tried to burn some? And it <laughs> yes. was practically indestructible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Well, that, by the way, folks, uh, we don't set games on fire generally. That was a reference to the final episode of the 2015 Board Vent Advent Calendar series, if you hadn't seen it. Don't worry, we are not setting our games on fire as a general rule. Um, but anyway, go on. Oh, uh, well, so anyway, I mean, I just took them, took the dice over to the sink and washed them off. 
and, and because the, only those had it, it makes me wonder if maybe we didn't have something on our hands, eating peanuts or something. I don't know. Because, Are you saying we're filthy? Well, I'm saying that oh, it because was only on because it was the on the dice. dice. The dice get more handled than the character standings. Well, and only on the red dice. It wasn't on any of the other dice. We'd look through everything else. It wasn't there. Yeah, and the, so and the red dice are the enemy dice, on. so they get rolled more than any other dice yeah. in the game. That's interesting. So, well, yeah, we'll have, we're we're definitely keeping an eye out, and of course, before you do any selling, we'll have to <laughs> That's have a true. close look at everything. Indeed, yes, indeed. But um, so what was it? No, I was. I mean, oh. are you sure the mold situ is situation is okay? Yeah, uh, he's he's really worried for us. Oh, that's nice. Well, thanks. All righty. Uh, next up, let's see. I know you have the fancy gaming table on loan now, but regarding your previous glass table, how come you never use some kind of tablecloth or felt mat? Uh, don't your cards get nicked when you try to pry them using fingernails on the glass surface, ignoring any obsessive desire to keep cards pristine? What about just what about just in easy? Well, what, oh, oh, yeah. What about a mat? Ah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, because actually, I'm sure I forget when the uh, people from China come. It's in March, I guess, is when we're gonna lose the yeah, so. the table, and we'll go back to the glass tables. Yeah. So glass table is going to return. In all honesty, the reason I didn't use it is because I honestly thought the glass table made the videos look really cool. <laughs> it's kind of like J.J. Abrams lens flares in Star Trek. It feels kind of futuristic. I always just loved the glass, and you know, sometimes you you, you see the play of light, and um, I and in all honesty. While the the um, the Geek and Sun table is very very cool, and there's no choice about it, the felt is so nice just to be able to slide cards under yeah, other cards. Yeah. We were playing um, the Pyramid deck builder game from AEG the other night, where you slide dozens of cards under other cards, and it's yeah. so nice. Um, it'll be hard to go back to glass, but man, the glass just looks so cool. Yeah, it's just cool looking. I know, and I really like being able to stack my cards in the little uh, thing on the. Oh yeah, and our glass table has like a nice little kind of built-in card. St- or no, oh, you mean no, in the Geek Sun table? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, honestly, I don't think once the table's back, I'll go back to glass. And yes, does it nick the cards? It does a little bit, but I'm just not obsessive about that. No, we these are games to be played. Yes, they're games to be played. All righty. So, uh, you already got rid of it, but just FYI, there are some Caverna variants on BGG. Um, yeah, but they're variants until Uwe Rosenberg says. Yeah, here's what it is. I'm not interested. Um, can you tell the Nintendo story? Just already did. Have you ever played uh, Hanafunda with Nintendo cards? No, I don't know what that is. Thanks for writing, Greg. I'm moving on to Priscilla, who has two questions. Um, what are yours and Jen's top 10 favorite TV shows? And what top five, or 10 if you want to pick that many, games would you play with Jen uh, the most, if you stopped, Rado runs through today and didn't have to learn or play all these new games. Let's see. Well, that second question is an easy. I see. What you know? That's kind of a what games? And actually, that is a top ten conversation. I, I know that is on the top ten suggestion list. Um, something like, what games do you wish you could play more? Because that's really her second question. What games do we wish we could play more? Yeah, honey. What games do you wish you could play more? And Priscilla demands five. All of my top ten. <laughs> all of my top 26 yep yeah that's the easy answer yeah i mean we've got now we've got 300 basically because he has to call the games so frequently what we keep are really really our top top favorites mm-hmm. and so anything on this wall i'm happy to play yep yeah yeah let's see so jen's gonna cop out but i mean actually no that is really true i mean i know you wish we could play more trajan 
Um, and I know you wish we could play more Last Will. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I wish we could play more Pandemic, and I wish we could play more Agricola. And I mean, I got, I, you know, I'm really, I wish we could play more Glass Road. I'm really thinking a lot about Glass Road a lot. But you know, at any given time, I mean, we love all these games. We just want to play them all, but it's just not viable. Why have you been thinking about Glass Road? I don't know. Oh, because because that uh, there was that Christmas market in the advent calendar, oh. and that just kind of put Glass Road in my mind. We've only played it like five times, yeah. you know, including that one time with David and Angela. Yeah. And it's, it's just so wonderful. I'd love to play it more. But you know what? We need to play Apocalypse Chaos, and we need to play. The pyramid game from AEG. I just can't remember the name of it. And we need to, play, you know, yeah, we just need to keep playing more. I mean, I, I'm surprised. It's one of the reasons I love expansion so much because expansions yeah. for a game gives me the opportunity to go back and play a game again. Yay! Because yeah, we hadn't played Andor for over a year, and then we got it out, yeah, and we we're just playing this new adventure. And Jen's like, "We should play this more. This is so good. I know. I love it. it is so good." Um, top top ten TV shows. That um, right. That wouldn't be that hard for me. In fact, I think I've made that top 10 list at one point. Let me see if I've got that. Just in case the voters ever let me make a top 10. Let me see my if I can find my top 10 list. Well, let's see. Recently, I've been enjoying Adam Ruins Everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jen's top 10 list is going to be the last 10 shows she's watched, oh, basically. Uh, I like Downton Abbey. Yeah. Uh, I really liked, uh, what's that one with the White House? West Wing. Yeah, no, that is your favorite show of all time. And, Easy. And, and, his other and you also loved Newsroom. You loved Newsroom I to love, death. Love, Even love, the love. third season, you loved it. Of course. Yes. Yep. yes. Yep. And um, back in the day, I used to love Friends, of course. Mm-hmm. Everybody Do you think you'd love Friends now, though? Really? If you uh, went back and watched no, it? It's, it? No, probably not. Yeah. I mean, back in the day, you used to love Seinfeld. And I bet you would hate Seinfeld now. Why? Because it's, it's I mean... Because you, these days, I don't know why you like Seinfeld, because, I mean, I would never um, expose you to Curb Your Enthusiasm or other shows that, you know, Seinfeld was a show about four losers. Yeah. Who were really kind of awful people. Yeah, and very smarmy. Yeah, and very smarmy uh, people. And you hate that kind of stuff now, but you used to love Seinfeld. Well, I think I gave up on it, remember? But anyway, (laughs) I don't know. Let's see. Well, I mean, I don't have a definitive top 10, but I, you know, I started to make a list not too long ago. Um, I think Lost might be my favorite TV show of all time. Star Trek, the original series, both Jen and I, easily um, Survivor. Oh, yeah. And you would probably put um, Amazing Race in your top 10. I, I don't think I would just because the luck of taxis just drives me nuts. Yeah. But um, a, a, a 24, West Wing, Louie, The Shield, the the office, which is a show I wish I could share with Jen, but Jen would just she wouldn't be able to stand Michael Scott at all. Uh, Archer, Futurama, The Colbert Report. Oh my gosh, Colbert, what did you do? Oh, he was such an amazing show. But um, Saturday Night Live, uh, Arrested Development, Thirty Rock, My Name Is Earl, Community, Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, House, Pushing Daisies. Those are all. Oh. Pushing daisies. Oh, pushing daisies. I like that. Yeah, that was a good one. Oh, what's my new favorite one? I don't know. Uh, with the guy and the drug. NCC. Oh, yeah. Jen is very much enjoying Unlimited. Yeah. Is that it? Limitless. Or Limitless. 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 Jen has a real soft spot for, um, what do I call them? I, I call them fugitive shows. Because, um, you know, they're all based on the same formula as The Fugitive from back in the 70s. Some poor schlub... <laughs> 
who, for whatever reason, has some kind of outstanding, extenuating problem in their life, and yet, for whatever reason, they constantly find themselves helping other people every week. Yep. Um, you know, whether, and so, you know, what's it? Yeah, you know, Quantum Leap is no longer on the air. Person of Interest is not on right now. Uh, gosh, Jen loved Nowhere Man. Yeah. Jen loved um, the, the one with the guy from uh, Rome. Oh, Rome is on my list. Oh, oh yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I mean, what was, this, what was that one? I can't think of it now. Um, but it only had one season. But yeah, so right now Jen is loving Limitless. I mean, she is just absolutely devouring it. We will have finished the first eleven episodes, um, in another night or two. So yeah, I'm sorry that's not a definitive top ten. But you know, that that's some stuff anyway to hopefully answer um Priscilla's question. So. And right, then moving on to Brian, who has some podcast questions. Let's see here. I have a few questions. And would you be interested in telling what gaming platforms you own so we can recommend some good cooperative games? This is about video games. I only own one gaming platform. Well, I guess we own iPhones. But as I mentioned earlier, we don't really consider that a gaming platform. I still own a PlayStation 3. And in all honesty, the only reason I own a PlayStation 3 is uh, because it is a good Blu-ray player. Um, and um, CD player. We, uh, whenever we play Escape, we still use the CD instead of MP3s, and we play it on the PlayStation Three. Um, I have not made the jump, and I sold my Xbox Three or my not my Xbox, my Xbox, yeah, my Xbox Three Sixty before we came here. I have no interest in buying a PS Four or a, or a One. Um, got rid of my Nintendo GameCube. Got rid of our Wii. I, I'm just not into games anymore. But let's see. You mentioned video games with video gaming with Jen back in the day. What? Okay, so it's not really about the play for, uh, platforms, honey. Do you remember any video game co-ops we used to play? The cookies and cream, of course. Cookie. You actually remember it by name? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, then that's saying something because we haven't played that game for must be ten years. But Jen still remembers it. Cookie: The Adventures of Cookie and Cream. Not cookies and cream, because okay. uh, one of the rabbits was cookie, the other one was cream. The Adventures of Cookies and Cream, or uh, you have me saying it now, <laughs> cookie and cream to this day is still by far the gr- one of the greatest cooperative games. Period. Yeah, it, was really good. it was amazing. It was on the original PlayStation, was it? No, no, it was on the Xbox. Because I remember we, yeah, no, it was an Xbox. Or, um, I think it was. Oh man, I don't even remember now. I'd have to go back and look. I th- I'm pretty sure it was original play a PlayStation One game. So we played that. We played, there was a really cool game we played on PS3, a pixel junk shooter. That was awesome. That was the spaceship playing game where uh, we would fly around and there was lava and you, and you shot the walls and it would make the, you know, and, and the lava would flow. And there was like, it was a constant puzzle game with these little shooter things and you were constantly changing it. That we really liked that. It was over way too quick. Um, we, we played a lot of EverQuest. Oh. And then a lot of Asheron's Call, yep. and then some Dark Ages of Camelot, and then some World of Warcraft, uh, a lot of Diablo back in the day. A lot of Zelda. Uh, well, yeah, which we never... Oh, yeah, we did. We played Zelda Four Swords, and um, it was so stupid that they put that kind of screwage factor. I remember, remember the Zelda we could play on the Game Boy, yeah. and it was it, there was like a series of cooperative dungeons you have to go, yep. but if you wanted, there was a final score, and I could pick you up and throw you off a ledge so you would lose points, <laughs> and that was so dumb. It was so much fun. It didn't need any of that semi-cooperative point scoring stuff, because it was a lot of fun. Oh, and we, heck, we tried to play um, Zelda Wind Walker with Jen trying to play on the Game Boy and following us all around. We played Fable 2 cooperatively, yeah. just to throw out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we did the best we could, but... 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we were always looking for them, but there were never that many we could find, in all honesty. Um, I think the the landscape is much better for cooperative video games now, but we don't play video games anymore because we have board games. Well, we used to play um, Blanca and Chun-Li. Oh, yes. Well, competitive, we, we played a ton on the Super Nintendo. We played Street a ton Fighter. of the original Street Fighter II, not Championship Edition, none of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Street Fighter II, it was always Beauty Beast. I was Chun-Li, Jen was Blanca. Yep. That was the only one she could play. I could play all of them because I you know, that was back when I was working Nintendo yeah, full time, yeah. so I had to play all the characters with everybody at work. Yeah, and he, I'd tie one hand behind his back or something. Yeah, yeah, just to make it fair, oh. but yeah. Yep. Um, but we, I you used to play. I would play the video games, and you'd sit and help me. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, because Jen enjoyed playing games, and um, I was just kind of her co-pilot. Um, yeah, that's how she's played every game I've ever made, basically, except for Brink and Siphon Filter. Um, what, so that's kind of a cooperative what's experience. What's my favorite one of yours? All I can think of is Pitchfork Harry, but that's not Pitfall. Right. Pitfall is Pitfall: <laughs> The Lost Expeditions. Of all the games I've made, Jen's favorite is Pitfall. <laughs> Pitfall: The Lost Expeditions. Yeah, um, it's really clever. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, it was not the best game I ever made, but I'm I'm proud of it. I think it was really fun. Yep. Let's see. Uh, all right. So that was one question from Brian. Uh, oh, and he was asking, you know, I was thinking of keep talking and nobody explodes, lovers in a dangerous space time. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. There are some really cool things. And I got to say, keep talking and nobody explodes. <sighs> I'm sorely tempted to figure out how to get that because I think we'd really enjoy that. But honestly, I don't have time to play it because there's too many board games to play. Um, All righty. Does he have any other questions in here? Uh, do... Right. Oh, um, Kingsburg. Do you have any? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, he's talking about how it's he's having a very hard time trying to get the expansion for Kingsburg because it's hard to get. Do you have any silly hard to get expansion you're dying to play? Um, a lot of podcasts point out Kingsburg is a, a must have expansion that's impossible to get. Um, that's true. Certainly, I would hate to have Kingsburg if I didn't have that expansion because Kingsburg by itself really has limited replay, whereas that expansion is hugely important to get. But honestly, I mean. Jen and I, we're just we we play too many games. There's no time to lament whatever expansion we can't get. So I don't have a good answer for that. I'm sorry to say. Uh, that'll do for now, says Brian. So let us move on to honey. How do you spell pronounce Y V E S? It's French. Uh, I think that's yeast. Yeast, really? Y V E S is yeast. Obviously, neither Jen nor I sorry. speak French. Yeast, yeast. Sorry. I'm just going to go Vievs then, okay. even though I'm sure that's entirely wrong. Um, and actually, his last... No, I can't say his last name because that wouldn't be cool. Uh, but anyway, so... Uh, oh, he's Dutch. Um, oh, yeah, okay. I, I, yeah, I remember seeing this. Um, so he didn't have a question. He just wanted me to mention uh, a cautionary tale for people. Vievs uh, you know, uh, is Dutch. And was very disappointed to find out that the Dutch version of Pandemic Legacy has some really epically egregious, terrible, game-destroying translation mistakes oh. that really kind of ruined the game. And um, after you know, I, I, I saw that, and he just said he wanted me to do a shout-out, just in case I have any Dutch listening listeners who have gotten the game and haven't 
played the game yet and haven't had the game ruined because of these bad translations, go to Board Game Geek. There is a thread. You can just do a search for it in um, to find Dutch or translation errors Dutch. Um, and there's a thread devoted to how to fix them without spoiling the game. And in fact, while I'm mentioning it, there are some equally bad ones for the German translation. And I'm sure you can go on Board Game Geek and find out you want to get these fixed before you play the game because they really hurt the game very badly. So Eves just wanted everybody to know that. All righty. Um, although then he did ask the, ask the question, do you know how something like this is possible? Does Z-Man just not care? What can we do? What would you do? So those are some questions. Um, <sighs> Board Game Geek is a phenomenal resource. For any listener I have who's listening to this who doesn't have a, a, uh, a Board Game Geek account, I got to say, get one. Sign up. On Board Game Geek, before you play any game, this is definitely something I do right now, which is often very hard because often I end up playing games before anybody's played them on Board Game Geek. But in the rare circumstance where um, I actually get to play a game before, you know, that has been, and people, I, the first thing I ever do with a game is I read the rules and then I go to Board Game Geek and I go to the rules section of whatever game it is and I do a quick scan. For um, rule for rules errors, and uh, you know, I, I just do a look through, and I see, or any, and I and I read those to see if people have caught stuff like this, because usually people have. And as you say, in this case, the the community on Board Game Geek has come up with really good tools to help the Dutch and the German players, and heck, probably other languages, um, you know, deal with these mistakes. So all I can say is, become a Hardcore, ardent board game geek. Sign up on Board Game Geek, and whenever you're starting to play a game, just go check the forums for that game and just see if there's anything that's up that might impact your game. That's what I would do. That is what I do to try to help avoid stuff like this. Um, and how did this happen? Um, I'll tell you how this happened. I have, I, I can't say definitively. I have no inside information, but I will base my what I'm following based on my own experience of 20 years of making games. Granted, they're video games, not board games, but I am 100% certain this is what happened. Pandemic Legacy had a street date. They had a target of getting that game out for Essen 2015. And gosh darn it, it was going to make it no matter what. This happens all the time in video games. You know, I mean, particularly if you're working on video games that are tied to like a movie license um, or a TV show or whatever, you have a date, you have to hit that date, whatever it takes, whatever compromises you have to take. Yeah. Because if you don't, your company will lose millions. I mean, um, I, I don't know this for a fact, but Z-Man, and really not Z-Man, but its owning company, what is it, F2Z, Philosophia Games, they pro there were probably millions of dollars on the line for them if they did not get Pandemic Legacy out. Because they had probably lined up all kinds of advertising and already booked all the advertising you know, on websites. In you know, you know, There aren't very many board game magazines in America, but there are definitely board game magazines in Europe and whatnot. Um, you know, and they had probably made a concerted effort. You know, They had booked all all the space at Essen. They had an entire booth. That must have cost tens of thousands of dollars to have that big, gigantic Pandemic Legacy booth at Essen. And, you know, if Pandemic Legacy wasn't ready, the, you know, the, the people who run Essen weren't going to give them their money back. So that game had to be ready. And so I would be willing to bet things took longer than they thought were going to take and corners had to be cut. It doesn't mean they don't care, but... They knew full well they had to make tough decisions. When you're in game development, you have to make decisions. You have to make those compromises. 
the vast majority of people who will play Pandemic Legacy are going to play it in English. And so 90%, 80%, I don't have any inside information, the overwhelming majority of the percent of their production focus had to go to making sure that English was going to work. And so that meant the German and the Dutch and whatever other language probably had to suffer. Did they want to make those compromises? No, I absolutely guarantee they did not. And I guarantee you it pains them. There was somebody in Z-Man whose responsibility it was to make sure that the Dutch experience was just as good as the English experience. And I'm sure that, you know, you know they, it, they lost sleep over this. But at the end of the day, deadlines come up and you have to make those tough decisions. And um, was it the right decision? It's hard to say. I'm sure they're second-guessing themselves. And I hope more than anything else that they have been able to take lessons learned from those decisions and that they will be less likely to make those decisions in the future. I say this because I've had to make those decisions making games myself. And there are some decisions I have made on some of my games that I am so bitterly filled with regret on that I, even years later, if something makes me think about it, I will literally curl up and just die a little bit inside and just like get all. And so that's what happened and that's why it happened. And I'm sorry it happened to you. And it wasn't because there was anybody bad. It wasn't because there were were any dicks. It wasn't, it, it was just... They were doing the best they could under tough situations, um, and that's what happened. And and you know sometimes the player gets hurt, and um, I'm really sorry that happened for you. But I'm really glad you wrote the email so that if there are any other Dutch speakers or German speakers or anybody who's thinking about playing Pandemic Legacy, go to Board Game Geek, do a quick check, and um, don't miss out because it, it'd be such a shame to have a portion of the game ruined because of some really bad translation typos. Alrighty. Next up, we are coming back to Priscilla. Oh my God, it's the same Priscilla. She, I went so long, she is asking more questions. <laughs> um, if you were to choose only one board game designer and play, oh, and, and play only their games for the rest of your life, who would it be? Well, for me, that's easy peasy. It's Stefan Feld. No two ways about it. Honey, the easiest way for you to answer this question is if you could only play... What's the first game you can think of that if you can only play one game for the rest of your life, it would be it? Agricola. Agricola. Then, okay, Uwe Rosenberg. And that's not bad because then you've got, you've got Agricola, you've got Gates of Loyang, you've got, um, but you've got lighter games. You've got Patchwork. You've got the Agricola, All Creatures Great and Small. You've got Bonanza if we ever were in a three-plus player game experience. So there you go. Priscilla. That's those are asking the tough questions. Okay, moving on to Philip. Hey, Rado, I have a question for RTT. How um, how do you come up with a rating system for your games on BGG? It seems like you're using a mathematical formula. Some ratings even go out to four decimal places. And why? <laughs> it's really strange. That's a good question, Phil. Oh, All right, it's it's very silly. No, I have no formula whatsoever. Okay. I when I am rating games, I very closely adhere to the semi-official rating structure of Board Game Geek, as much as I hate it. And in fact, there is an entire thread devoted to this. And in fact, if you go to FAQ, FAQ.rado.com, this is a frequently asked question that I kind of answered, um, how I rate games. Long story short, I stick to the rating system. So you'll see I've got several games that are rated 8.273149 and 8.317248 and 8.317247. And that might look like it's a crazy rating scheme, but here's the deal. 
all those games, to me, they're just an eight. And you can look at what that means based on the board game geek definition of what an eight is. The reason I have all those decimal points is I like to have all my games relative ranked relative to each other. And so I know if I like this game more than I like this game, even though they're both eights, I have to give one an 8.2 and one of them an 8.3. And sooner or later, I'm going to come across a game that I like in between both of them. So I have to give them an 8.25. And then I'll find another game in between those. And I'll have to go an 8.4 and 8.3 and 8.2 gets used up. And then eventually I'll find another one that it get, then I have to do 8.25. And then eventually I have to do 8.255 and then 8.2555. And that's just what I have to do to make sure I have a because I now have dozens and dozens and dozens of games that I rate all in eight. Um and I still rank them relative to each other. So that's why I end up with those crazy long, you know, seven decimal point things. It's just so that I can rank them. But they're all eights. All right. But if you go to games.rado.com, you can see then at a glance how I rank every single game relative to each other. So that's why I have that. Moving on to a question from Stork Ace. And I do not believe that is Stork's name. Um, but that is his email. Well, oh, all right. Okay. Uh, Stork Ace asks, do you play any online board games? And if so, what's your favorite? So I already asked that earlier. Sorry, I actually, Stork, I don't. Moving on. Oh, I've got three copies of this one. Yay, we're moving forward. Oh, I've got three copies of another question from Priscilla. Honey, Priscilla would now like to know Jen has gone off to check dinner again. Um, I guess I really shouldn't have done this at a time because Jen is just bailing on half of these Q&As. I'm not bailing on this. All right, she says she's listening. Um, Priscilla has two more random, odd, and possibly impossible top tens. Top ten Thanksgiving-themed games. Um, And top ten... Christmas, Hanukkah, holiday-themed games. Can you think of a single game that you would come up with for to play on Christmas or you know for the holidays specifically? Um, mm. And Jen has just gone and gotten herself dinner, but she didn't bring me any. No, that's because you're talking. Because I'm doing all the talking. Um, you're right, Priscilla. That's tough. What? Uh, a game specifically? Basically, a, a game to bring over for the holidays. Well, of course, it's going to be a lot. I mean, you know, code names would be great. Um, and beforehand, yeah, that's going to be my answer. Code names. And before you play, dig through all the cards and only choose words that somehow tie into holiday and then have the variant rule of you can't use the word Christmas or holiday. So that would be my answer. Ha ha. And that's my top one out of one to answer that question. Okay. Let's move over. Wait, Jen has something to say. We just opened a bunch of things in the advent calendar that had kind of festive Oh, yeah, yeah. Snowman or whatever yep. on them. So one of those. Any game that actually had a holiday-themed expansion from the 2015 Advent Calendar, says Jen. So like Rococo, Settlers of Catan. Um, yeah. Theo asks uh, two questions. Oh, one was the Magic the Gathering thing. Okay, answered. Uh, second question. Someone who's interested in moving to Seattle, what makes Seattle the best city in the world? Well, Jen says Seattle's not the best city in the world. London is. London is. But Seattle's pretty damn nice. Is Seattle the second best city in the world? Oh, gosh. Yes. Yes? Yes. Don't look away from the mic when you answer. I wasn't looking away. You I said, was thinking. oh, gosh, as you looked off into space. <laughs> I was thinking. Okay. So, but, Seattle. So, honey, what makes Seattle the second best city in the world? Seattle has a really good public transport system right now, which I have actually used when I go back to visit your mom. Mm-hmm. And I really like that. Uh, he's he's telling me to speak up. 
<laughs> um, anyway, uh, so I really like that. I like that you can get around easily. And even which is a uh, not the most common thing in American cities. Yeah, I and mean, even when we were living in Seattle and working, I w- used to work downtown Seattle. I used to ride the bus down um, all the time. So they had a really good transit system. What fifteen twenty years ago, even. Mm-hmm. So um, I love, 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 love Pike Street Market. I go there every chance I get. I love all of the craft and the makers and the creativity that goes on there. Um, they've got good food. There's various places we always enjoy going. Um, I love the Pacific Northwest. I love the Olympic Mountains and Puget Sound and Mount Rainier. It's just a beautiful place to live. Um, oh, what else? What about Seattle? I think the relaxed uh, attitude of people that live there is pretty cool. And now that I've lived in England... I would say that Seattle, actually, the difference between living in England and Seattle, it's quite similar as far as the temperatures, but Seattle can be gray for weeks at a time. It just sort of is always gray, whereas living in England, uh, because it's an island, the storm systems and stuff would blow over and you'd get, you'd get sunshine and, and grayness in a day, but it wasn't just a constant gray uh, all, for weeks. So I would say that actually does count against Seattle in favor of England, which would be London. Theo did not ask, why is London great? He's not considering moving to London. (laughs) I'm just contrasting. Well, no, but if you want to contrast something, apparently he currently lives in Houston, Texas. Well, we lived in Austin. Yes. So contrast Austin to um, Seattle then. Okay. Well, Austin and Houston are completely different, of course. Is Austin the third best city in the world? No. 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 Sorry. I mean, Austin has a lot of good things going for it, but it's definitely not the third best city in the world. Okay. Um, so, but we'll basically contrast Washington to Texas. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, Texas is hot and has horrible bugs and fire ants and cedar pollen. So that's not good. Whereas Seattle doesn't really have any of those. Um, other than that, I mean, I really liked Austin in that it was a, a crafty place with lots of creativity as well. He doesn't live in Austin. He lives in Houston. Oh, Houston tried to swallow me whole. So what can I say about that? That's true. (laughs) Thank goodness I had a a beagle to save me and my husband as well. That was a close one. Yeah, I just about got, what was that river? The Houston River? Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, let's see. Um, So those are all good answers. I would add, I always loved, it's a silly thing. I always loved Seattle's verticality. I love downtown Seattle. How the whole the whole city is kind of built on a very steep hill. Um, you know, I, I back in my younger days, in my twenties, I bicycled a lot. I would bicycle from Burien to Seattle every day to go to work when I worked downtown. And I loved, you know, I loved pushing myself biking up the hills, and I loved speeding down the hills. I was very young and stupid, um, and put myself in danger all the time. Heck, I mean, while I was there, I got hit twice by traffic. I was dumb, um, young, dumb, and the other thing. So. Ah, uh, yeah, you know the views, the food, Pike Place Market, um, and the green, the green. You know, I mean, as Jen points out, yeah, it's gray and it's rainy and it's wet a good deal of the time, but that's the price you pay for perpetual wonderful. I mean, you know, it's the is it the Emerald City or is it the Emerald State? I forget. It's the Evergreen State and the Emerald. City. Yeah, the Evergreen City and the Emerald State. That's the no, or no. vice versa. That's the price you pay, and it's totally worth it. And there's trees. Yeah, the trees. I went back and saw trees. Yeah, but now you're comparing it to Malta. I know. Malta, we don't have trees. <laughs> no, we have shrubby things. Yes, yes. Um, yeah. 
It, it's just it's a phenomenal place. Uh, if I were to beat it up, though, my God, the traffic. Yeah. It has some of the worst traffic in the all the United States. It's absolutely horrific. But we, you know, if you're prepared to use the public transit, you know that largely addresses that problem. That's why it needs such good public transit because the traffic is just so god awful. Uh, love the U District. I'm just going to go back to all the things we love. Um, yeah. Anyway, next question from um, Igor, or is it Igor? All righty. Uh, from Brazil. Let's see here. Oh, he's written a lot of stuff. I should really read these. All right. I'm just scanning for the question mark. Um, in the top 10. All right. In the top 10 must-haves games, Jen can't decide about Agricola because, oh, it wouldn't include expansion decks. What decks do you see as essential? Oh, yeah. So um, in Agricola, you're not going to know. You couldn't possibly say which. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jen doesn't know because I always choose. Um, if I had to pick one expansion for Agricola, uh, it would probably be the Gamer's deck because that one just has so much really far out, funky, really cool outside the box cards in it. And there's just so many in it. If you're if you have a Grickle and you're only going to buy one expansion pack for it, it'd be the gamers, the the, the gamers expansion. Um, do we have a custom deck? No. Every time we play, I just mix and match and create random stuff as much as possible. Let's see here. A great game. Do you think it's like a superior? Do you feel? Uh, oh, um, do we feel that Lune Architect? would um, be redundant related to Suburbia. No, they're very different games. Yes, they both are hexagon-shaped tile-laying games, but they play so differently. I wouldn't think so. Mm. Oh, but okay, yeah. If I had to choose one, though, I would choose Suburbia. He asked because it's tough getting games in in um, Brazil. So under those circumstances... Knowing full well, if I had to pay an extra $30 on every single game, under those circumstances, if I already had Suburbia, yeah, I would not seek out... Heck, I would not even seek out Glenmore, I think. Um, although, if I had the other one... They're both so good. They're both so close. Once I had one, I don't think I'd go for the other if I was having to deal with that kind of import. I, uh, it, Brazil must be wonderful, but yeah, it's tough being a board game geek in Brazil, I know. Um, speaking of which, what's the market for board games like in Malta? And you mentioned in Brazil how hard it is to get games. Malta is... you know There is... There's one Warhammer slash Magic the Gathering slash Yu-Gi-Oh! shop. And they've got a couple of board games, but there's really nothing there. There's one comic book shop. They've got a few things, but there's really nothing there. And there's one toy store in... um, in, uh, Is it in Shagra? No, it's not in Shagra. In Masta that I know a, a, a year and a half ago... He um, he ended up getting a whole bunch of games from Pegasus Spila in because he was trying to foster an industry, but I don't think he got any buyers. And so I think he's still just sitting at all those games and he probably hasn't picked up any more. So yeah, there's very little um, scene for buying board games in Malta. If you want, if you live in Malta and you want to buy board games, you got to get them shipped here. And the best I found is Filbertnet uh, or Filbertnet. Dot com. They've got the best shipping prices. Nowhere near as bad as what um, you get in Brazil. But if you make a really, really big super order, you're going to have to pay something like 50 or 60 euros, I think, to get them all shipped here. So I generally, just like two or three times a year, I try to uh, coordinate with the other board game geeks on Malta, and we try to do big super orders so that we can split the shipping amongst all of us. That's the situation on the street in Malta. And... 
Right. So that was it for questions. All right. Oh, and we got another triple question. Wow, there were nowhere near as many questions as I thought there were. Um, Pele asks, scanning, scanning. What is my relationship to other board game personalities? Most notably, Todd Bassel, Z Garcia, Sam Healy, and Rodney Smith. Have you met them all? Uh, what do you think of their respective shows? Think up, keep up the good work. Okay. Um, Rightio. And P.S., he looks forward to um, me and Jen writing a book on marriage and relationships, <laughs> which could be called Compromise, Communication, and Cardboard, the, success, the Key to a Successful Marriage. That actually sounds pretty awesome. Um, all right. If I wasn't so lazy, I'd get to work right on that. So um, I have met all of the big hitters. Um, you know, Tom Z, Sam, Rodney, Joel, Lance, um, uh, 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 um, Tim, Scott. Yeah, I, I, I've met, I've met uh, a, a lot of them. They're all nice, wonderful people. And it's weird. I, I never get a chance to hang out with them at these conventions because it turns out I, – I actually, I ta- I, you obviously you asked this question before I did my wrap-up for BGGCon. I am terrible – I'm a terrible convention goer. I'm supposed to go to these things to play games, but I end up doing very little of that. I end up spending all my time running around trying to pick up publisher review copies of games and um, kind of cover the convention. So I don't really get a chance to play much with them. So I don't really interact with these guys very much. Plus, the other problem is I'm always um, on European time. So it seems like most of the socializing goes on after 8 p.m. But by 8 p.m., I'm back in my room um, talking with Jen on Skype because she's about to go to bed, and then I'm going to go to bed by 9. So I never really get a chance to interact with them very much, which is a shame, because they all, from what little I've seen of them, they're lovely people. I, I talked about this in, in my last podcast. I mean, Sam Healy is the sweetest, kindest, warmest guy you're ever going to meet. Complete 180 from you know his persona he has on Dice Tower. But yeah, I never really get a chance to know them very well. Um, probably the closest of all of them is, for whatever reason... Lance Meister, the Undead Viking, it seems like at, at BGG Con and then at Gen Con before then, we just tend to run into each other on the floor more than anybody else. Not because of plans or anything like that. We just happen to run into each other. And Lance is such a sweet, wonderful, chatty guy that we just end up standing around for a half hour, 45 minutes talking. And I've enjoyed it every time. So I would say probably more than anybody, I have a, a strong relationship with Lance, and I'm, I'm really happy to have it. I look forward to seeing him. But you know what? I would love... It's weird. I mean, I, I've run into Tom now at, at, at all these conventions. I'd love to hang out and get to know Tom, but it seems to be impossible because whenever the two of us stand still <laughs> in, next to each other at a convention, there's just like... Shwoop. It's like a magnet. Yeah, it's like a magnet of everybody who, oh, God, we got to get a picture of Rado and Tom together with both of us in the picture. And, and you know, because we're both, you know, I mean, we're minor YouTube celebrities, but obviously we're fairly well known in the board game industry. So we never really get a chance to chat much. Um, and, you know, I mean, he's a really interesting guy. And we certainly have huge differences about everything. We disagree on almost everything. So I imagine we'd have some very interesting chats. I would love to co-host on the Dice Tower someday because Eric just gives Tom way too easy of a time. I mean, <laughs> Eric, come on, Eric. I mean, I've, I've actually, I've, I've met Eric Summer and I've told him this. I mean, you, you, you're, you're the voice for Euros on the Dice Tower. You've got to give Tom the business. But Eric's just too much of a sweetheart. And man, I would give the Tom the business big time. I would love to be on Dice Tower Showtime. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, I, I don't think that's ever really going to happen until someday Jen and I move back to the States. Um, 
So uh, that would answer Pele's question, which was repeated three times. So now we're moving on. Oh, we're back to Eves. Yeah, so Eves has asked another question, or is this the same question? It's been duplicated. Da, da, da. No, it's a new question from Eves. Uh, if that is Jen's guess as how to spell or how to pronounce Y-V-E-S. Eves. That sounds good. I like that. Let's see. Uh... Oh, there's no question in here, Eves. Yes, it's much easier. No, Uh all right, so he just all right. So that was, thank you for the for the other email, Eves, about theme, but he didn't ask a question. So let's move on. Okay, editing. All righty. <laughs> um. Right. So here's a question asked by Josie. In your last podcast, you talked about why you think women don't play board games as much as men. Found the topic interesting. Yes, this was the that topic. Uh, right. So she asks. What do you think defines someone who plays board games? Is there a board game type of person? Do you think this po- and this is obviously a separate question? Do you think it's possible to get my boyfriend to become interested in playing with me? And how do I do that? Because apparently Josie is a board game person and Mr. Josie is not. Honey Pie, here's a question for you. <laughs> you've uh, played with a few other people. You've uh, certainly met many people at uh, the few conventions you've been to. Would you say there is a type of board game person? You're not going to, um, are you not going to pigeonhole people? Are you not going to stereotype people? Well, it's hard to say because, I mean, if you think, well, big, small, you know, black, white, red, whatever. No, I wouldn't say there isn't a, a certain kind of that. All right. So Jen says there's no racial component to board gaming. Or even, you know, there's there's women and there's men. There's boys mm-hmm. and girls. Yeah. Um, there's probably some boths. Mm-hmm. We just don't know. Uh, so, no, I would say probably... A, a board. If I was going to give a stereotype to a board gamer, it would probably be that I expect them to be a bit more intelligent than the average bear. Ooh, that's a bit elitist. It may be elitist, but these are because if you're going to sit down and do a game, you, you're going to sit down and think, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Okay. So that's that's why I would say that probably it's somebody who is is intelligent or more more intelligent. Uh-huh. than your average bear, and also maybe a bit more introspective because they're willing to sit down and think things through. Okay. So are you saying that this is not true of Josie's boyfriend who won't play games with her? I would say Josie's boyfriend is in the same category as uh, the women in the other people's lives that I've offered some tips on before. When we talked about this before. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's exactly the same thing. It's you, There has to be some reason that somebody does something. And what is the reward for them? For you, it's you get to exercise your brain, you get to achieve some points, you get to move forward with your character, whatever it is that that particular game offers to you. Well, there's none of that to somebody who doesn't know how to play. So you need to figure out what reward is going to be at the the pot of gold at the at the rainbow's end for your significant other. And it could just be something where they win. And they get that sense of satisfaction. Or it could be that they learn, wow, that was really a lot of fun to actually sit down and think. And they only have an experience of being at school as a sit down and think activity. And so they think of it as work. Yeah. So they, or Wait, you have fun doing homework? Essentially, yeah. Something like that. So um, for me, from a womanly standpoint, you know, I know we've talked about 
<clears throat> that women need to have a, a spot cleared for them, basically, out of their responsibilities, probably in, in order to be able to fully enjoy gaming. And maybe your uh, significant other has a similar type thing. Maybe he's just really busy at work or or whatever, and it just isn't a priority for him. So by making it a fun date night thing where and you where you've selected a game where he's likely to win and um, enjoy himself, I mean, stack the odds in his favor, for goodness sakes, because you're going to be the ultimate winner if you guys get to enjoy an activity together on a regular basis. So that would be my my thought about that is figure out what he will enjoy. Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's what it boils down to. I mean, there's so many board games. I mean, he must have an interest in, in some particular theme and there must be five games to choose from that cover that theme. Yeah. Um, and even if it's some theme you find abhorrent like baseball, go get baseball highlights, 2045 and, um, and give it a try. You know, I mean, but I'm, I'm sure you've thought about that. I mean, honestly, in this particular case, I mean, I'm sure you've thought about all this stuff, and for whatever reason, it just hasn't... Pl- I mean, your biggest problem is you are having to overcome some sort of deep-seated, preconceived notion he has about games. And you know, even though intellectually you might have talked to him about it, and you might have shown him, and you might have tried to share with him, he's not getting over that preconceived notion that, well, yeah, that's great for you, honey, but it's just not going to work for me. And it's a matter of... I, 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 there's just you got to find one. Think outside the box. Yeah. Um, I wonder if it's too, I mean, it's probably, it's probably not in this particular case, but, you know, sometimes people don't want to be the one that doesn't know anything. And so having someone come who knows a lot about something come at you with a game and say, yes, you're going to love this or whatever, um, that might be really intimidating because you've got somebody who has a lot of knowledge coming at you with, and you're, you know, you're definitely on the bottom of the knowledge pyramid there. Mm-hmm. So mm, that's interesting. maybe if you can also chat with his siblings or something and find out what kind of games they played as kids so that he could come in with some kind of a, of an experience already where you'd have a common denominator. That might Well, be or more to the point, what kind of games you play as kids to stay away from them? Because those are whatever, or those are the things that have shaped his preconceived notions that is turning him off from games. But that's interesting what you're saying about it. It's a really good point. And as a video game designer myself, one of the, Strongest guiding principles I learned over the course of making video games for 20 years is people enjoy doing things they're good at. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 it's, it makes it feel, you know, and that's not to say people don't enjoy getting better at things and don't enjoy overcoming challenges, but there is nothing that a person won't enjoy more as an activity than something that makes them say, yeah, look at me. I am good. I am special. I am smart. Um, I have worth, I have value, I am good at this, I want to do it more. Because it triggers those chemicals in your brain and makes you want to do it more. So, I would say when trying to find a game, you know, your last ditch final effort, pick one, I mean, you know, it's kind of similar to what Jim was talking about, pick one that he has a chance of winning. But not just because, oh, you want to make sure he doesn't lose because that's demoralizing. Pick one that you think, based on your knowledge of him, that he will have a chance of being able to pick up and do well at, um, you know, and that might mean a really light filler game. That might mean something that uh, has a theme that's just going to help it click. 
That might mean something that has absolutely almost nothing to do with games. That might mean something that has a digital app integration. Um, that might mean something that has a timer because he thinks fast on his feet and is good in high-pressure situations. Um, that might mean something that is dexterity-based because you know he's got a steady hand. Um, something that he can succeed at. Um, and, as Jen was saying, it just popped in my head when you were saying it, something that you're not good at. Not to ensure that he wins, but just to ensure that it's something that the two of you can sit down and play with an even footing. That you know you don't have um, you know, the guaranteed one-up because you're a geek and he's not. So those are just things to consider, I guess. And back to the original question, because Jan answered and I didn't, what is it that makes a, bo- uh, a board gamer? Uh, you know, that is really hard not to just go down elitist routes. I mean... Anybody can be a board gamer because board gaming is such a wide hobby. There is obviously, there is a stereotype for board gaming, and it is a, um, a smart white dude. Or not, no, not even, I'm not even saying smart, but a, um, a, oh gosh, yeah. There's just no way you can do it without being insulting. And there are so many of them out there, and everybody knows it. Uh, you know, the, was, I don't know how you pronounce it, the grognards out there. Um, but, you know, it, it, it doesn't, have, it's only a stereotype because, it gets back to what we talked about before. These are people, guys, who everything in their life put them on a path to where they are now. Um, you know, from their genetics to their their experiences as a child to you know the the things that they were exposed at in pop culture that um, you know just push them towards that. That's what pushed you to turn you into a geek for whatever reason. Your boyfriend didn't get those things. And so you've got to try and find a short circuit to replicate all that stuff that would have put him on the same path as you. And that's tough, and I wish you the best of luck. Good luck, Josie. Okay, moving on to Paul. House rules. Do you use them often? Or do you have any major changes which improve games? Uh, I hate house rules. I really don't enjoy doing them, mostly because I'm lazy. And I want to sit down at a table knowing that what I am playing has already gone through tons and tons of playtesting and all kinds of feedback. And what I'm playing is the best this game could possibly be. And if, oh, well, that's not very good. Oh, I guess, you know what? I, if we changed the way they do player order here and made it a blind bid instead of a draft or what, whatever, heck, maybe it would be better. But I'm never going to know that unless it goes through hundreds of hours of playtesting. And I'm, 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 and that's why, you know, even there are often games where like, yeah, I think the game would probably be better. And, you know, um, you know, and sometimes even mention my videos, people say, yeah, that's really great. Did you try it out? And I say, nah, I got rid of the game. Why? It sounds like you had a great solution for it. Yeah, but I don't know if it's good or not. And I'm not going to spend 100 hours playtesting it to find out. The game didn't work. So I'm going to find another one that does. So I guess that's my feeling on house rules. If a game needs house rules... You know what? I got 300 other games waiting that don't. So, yeah, we don't chase after house rules very often. A game has to speak to us on such a deep and personal level that we will try and push through and come up with a rule. Time Stories was an example of that, but that's the exception to the rule for us. Okay. Which does, actually doesn't mean that you're not offering suggestions to the publisher and letting them know. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you are awesome that way. <laughs> Basically, he's a free advice service and he just is so generous with his suggestions. No. I think. Publishers don't expect that means you're going to get free 
I, I don't want to play test games. I only want to cover games. Amen. Basically, you just, you just told every play no, tester, no, no. every publisher out there, yeah, send it when it's still in its alpha because Rado will give you all kinds of feedback. No, I hate that. Yes. I hate playing games like that. So yes, I actively avoid them. those, Thank but you. you just told everybody to send us those. I'm just saying that you're an incredibly generous guy. <laughs> Thanks, honey pie. All right, Michael has a question. Dee, dee, dee. Uh, okay. Actually, I don't see Michael's question in here. All right. Oh, any thoughts? All right. So I got to read the whole thing. Uh, my question is about uh, you may not have to deal with as much given our age difference, but what is your advice if my friends insist that they do not want to come over and play games, but uh, they then actually have tablets and phones and such? Um, all right. All right. They oh, no, they do want to come over and play games, but they ha- they bring their tablets, they bring their phones and such, and they have them the entire game and um, barely return awareness to their own move. It's frustrating. I've even tried going to co-op games like Forbidden Desert, uh, where there ought to be constant involvement, but no luck. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, yeah, I think you know what the answer is. You got you have to have a no phone policy and put it away. And you know, if they don't want to do that, then they really don't want to play that game, and they're just humoring you and. Don't waste your time and go find somebody who actually does want to play the game. Um, you know, although it is tricky to say, uh, you're right. I, I, I can only assume, Michael, that you're probably in your late teens or early 20s. And you are literally a different generation than me because there is an entire generation that is growing up with smartphones and their entire life is multitasking. Or heck, maybe you're older than them, or maybe they're all ready to multitask and you're not. Maybe they are giving as much attention to the game they're playing with you as they give to anything in their life. I mean, I have to admit, Jen and I, you know, we were, I mentioned earlier, we uh, watch, what is that show? Limitless? Yeah. Jen watches it. Jen watches all shows, 100%. I watch all shows with a laptop on my lap cruising board game geek and um often watching i often watch two videos at the same time these days because yeah you know i i know i i know the formula i know what's going to happen um and i i can actually watch two at once so you know maybe from their perspective they are into the game and it doesn't seem that way so you can talk to them about it but if they're not then they really don't want to play the game and so that would be my advice i suppose sorry i can't come up with something better and you're right um, I don't have that problem because Jen is there 100% when we're playing. Yay. All righty. Except when I'm making dinner. Except when she's making dinner games. and keeps walking away. Um, Arthur asks, what kind of work do you do for Nintendo? Have you ever thought about designing board games for yourself? Why or why not? Uh, I talked about the work earlier in this very podcast. Have you ever uh, designing board games? No. I need to put that in my frequently asked questions on <laughs> faq.rado.com uh, because there's actually a whole thread devoted to this where somebody asked me and I actually answered and said, if I ever made a game, this is what it would be. Somebody please go make this game. And the reason I'm not going to do it is because it's a lot of work and I have worked very, very hard making games for two decades and I just don't want to do it anymore. Um, plus, another big thing, one of the things, one of the many things that ruined playing video games for me is I know video games too well. I am a student of video games. I can't play a video game. Even though I don't make video games anymore, if I were to play a video game, I'd spend my whole time studying it and dissecting it and tearing it apart. Rotto runs through is very, very dangerous, and it kind of puts me in a situation where I do kind of, when I play games, I look at them not in the same way Jen does, where Jen just gets to sit down and enjoy it. Whereas I sit down, and I'm thinking about, right, what am I going to talk about when I have to do a run-through of this? So that all, Rotto runs through kind of already ruins games a little bit for me, but nowhere near as much as it would ruin it for me if I was actually making games. So, yeah, I'm never going to make a board game. But thanks for asking, Arthur. 
Ron says two questions. One, have you seen the new Star Wars and what did you think? Um, yes, we have. Yes, we saw it on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Actually, Malta has great theaters. You you buy your seat at, and you know where you're going to be sitting. And that was really nice. Um, what did we think of it? Do yes. you want to go first or shall I? Well, you know what? Actually... Um, I misread this because uh, Ron had two other questions. I got, I got this mixed up. This was a question from Jason about Star Wars. And you know, actually, let's hold on a second because no one wants to hear spoilers. But I don't mind talking about Star Wars. So you know what, Jason? We're going to come back to your question. Jason's question will be the last. Uh, now here's Ron's question. Ron has two questions. Sorry. Uh, the, you know, gosh, we've been going at this I know. for yikes. All right. So Ron's two questions are, Beep, beep, beep. Yes, Ron wrote a lot. Ron, where are your question marks? Listen to your uh, horror story with travel to BGG Con. Sam Bus spending. How? <laughs> the the trip, because yeah. he, you know, the and particularly the trip back. How many life years did I lose on that trip? How many? How many you know, uh, it's fine. Yeah, um, actually, you know, I bounced back. And you know what? Whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And now I just look back and it's just a, it was a, it was a silly. I mean, I know I was miserable at the time, but I'm not miserable now. No. Um, you know, and the Essen thing wasn't that bad. I think we had an enjo- I had an enjoyable trip anyway. Oh, the trip, the yeah, the drive across yeah. when we had to, we yeah, yep. Um, the second question for Ron is much more game related. You only play games with Jen. Sometimes you would like to play games with three or more players. Um, is an idea to host a Rado runs through game mini convention on Malta with that uh, for a week or so. Uh, people here on vacation can play games with you. Well, no, I'm certainly not inclined to do that. But easily now, it seems like at least once every couple of months, somebody contacts me and say, hey, we're going to vacation in Malta. Can we come by and play a game? And we usually say yes. And um, yeah, we just had one the other day. We uh, played a lovely game of six-player game of Hangtown and Between Two Cities. And it was great. Um, not all of them have been great, but most of them have been great. And uh, and then you know uh, David and uh, and Angela they visit once every few months and every once in a while there's a few people who actually live here in Malta who play board games and they'll come over and visit with us. Sometimes we go over to Malta and visit them. But yeah, uh, an actual RottoCon that's never going to happen. No, that is once in Bend. <laughs> do you remember, honey? Oh. I threw a party. I threw a board a video game party. This is long before I played board games where I had everybody from work come over. Because, you know, remember we had that big 80-inch rear projection yeah. TV? Boy, we were studly then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, when it was in HDTV, when nobody had HDTVs, and I had all those laser discs. And, um, and so I, and I, I don't know why I did this, because I would never do that now. I, I had a party, and everybody from work was invited to come over, and we had to make dip, and we had to repair stuff. And I had the gaming console, and we had computers set up, and we had TV you could watch. And, and we actually threw a party, and it went really well. Um, gosh, I remember like the penultimate was, oh, that's what it was. It was Xena the musical. And we were going to make a, because it was such a big deal. And we, okay, everybody, we're going to come over. We're going to watch Xena the musical and we'll make a big party out of it. And then we'll play games and blah, blah, and, and all that stuff. And man, that was a lot of work doing that. And that was just for a party for like, um, well, 10 or 15 people coming over from work. And that was so much work. I will never do that again. It was a big success. Never again. I, and that was minuscule compared to whatever doing a mini convention would be. So thanks, Ron, for dredging up all those painful memories <laughs> of Xena the Musical 
RottoCon before Rotto even existed. <laughs> no, Rotto existed because we were playing EverQuest at the time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that was Ron. Those were Ron's two questions. And Jason will come back for about the Star Wars. That'll be the last question. So don't worry, folks. Um, if you don't want to have spoilers, you'll, boil, you'll bail before that question comes up. Lucas asks, what does a normal day look like for you? How many games do you and Jen play per day? I guess there isn't any conservatives between weekends and normal days. You know, that's funny. You know, I've been retired now for a year and a half, and, and still two or whatever, however long it's been. Yeah. Long no, time. no, no. How long have we been? We haven't been here for three years. Almost. We've been in this apartment for three years. No, you're entirely wrong. Oh. We are just about to finish. We're just about to end our second year here. So I've been retired for almost two years. But the the we still weekends are still different. We never watch movies on a weeknight. Sometimes. No, we don't. We almost never do. Oh. And then, you know, I, you know, I say, hey, honey, what do you want to watch tonight? Because it's my job. You know, we have different chores. One of my chores is making sure all our entertainment is queued up, ready to go. There's <laughs> always something fun to do. Yep. That's one of my jobs. It's good work if you can get it. Um, and, you know, Jen never has any idea what's in the queue. But, you know, we, 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 we're couch potatoes. I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it. We like watching t- the telly. The and telly. so, um, you know, I've always got a lot of stuff you know, queued up on Netflix or whatever it might be. And, um, you know, Jen says, what are we watching tonight? And during the week, we always watch TV shows. And during the weekend is when we watch movies. We almost never watch movies during the week because our our whole life has been, you know, we only watch movies on Saturday and Sunday for some reason. And there's no reason for it. All days are exactly the same because because, um, Lucas said all days must be the same. But it's definitely different. We still treat the weekend like the weekend, even though it's not. I know you do. You, you rarely do glass on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. And there's no reason not to. Saturday and Sunday is the exact same day for us. Yeah, I know. So it's weird. I, it's just, it's a lifetime's habit. It's hard to break. Mm. Um, but anyway, a normal work day, a normal work day, a normal day for me is, you know, get up. Um, well, normal day, we're going to play ideally two games. Some days only one game, but ideally one session of two games back to back. Hopefully seven days a week. So we're getting, you know, on, on, on a good week, 15 games played. Now, that, that no, that's not fair. Um, when I say a game, I'm talking about like a, um, when I say two games, I'm talking about two hours, two and a half hours of gaming. So that could be five or six games if, if it's a half an hour game. Um, it might be only one game if it's, a long ass euro, um, but hopefully every day we get a good two to three hours of gaming played, which you know could be like two hours of the same game back to back or one long game or whatever it might be. Um, sometimes we get an hour, sometimes we get five hours, sometimes we get none. But on average, I would say it comes out to about two or three hours a day every day of gaming. Um, ideally, I prefer to do it in the morning, um, and then and then while the afternoon. Jen will go and make some glass, and I'll film some stuff. This is getting harder and harder to do because now it's winter time, so it gets dark very early, and I do all my filming with just natural sunlight. I don't have any light rigs, so I have to really film in the morning, and that kind of messes things up because that means we got to get that two or three hours in the afternoon, and once it gets dark, it gets much harder for us to actually play games. Yeah. Um, Jen's brain starts shutting down. My brain starts shutting down. So... It really kind of depends on the time of year. Yeah, definitely. And so it really kind of mixes things up. But I basically, I've tried to describe what our ideal schedule is, but there is no guaranteed set. We, we, there is no structure in our lives. 
Um, you know, that even that weekend versus weekday thing I was just talking about, there is no structure at all. Yeah. Um, but that's that's the goal. Basically, the shops aren't open on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> that's the only that's structure in our much, lives. If we need something, we have to go to shopping on a Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. That's um, the only concern we have. And other than that. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but yeah, that's that's something. Okay. Um, Jake asks about sandboxiness, because this has come up recently in a couple of videos. We're almost caught up, Honey Pie. Almost there. The light is at the end of the tunnel. E-T-T, I've been joined. All right, so. Right, okay, yeah. So specifically, Mombasa and Nippon, I called both of them out as being too sandboxy. Um, but he's like, really? Are, are they that sandboxy? I was curious. I'm missing something here. Um, oh, 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 right. Okay. Oh, gosh. Darn. Okay. I got to read the whole thing. Can't scan it. All right. I was watching your Navigador run through. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hey, you didn't have a problem with sandboxiness in Navigador. How come you have a problem with sandboxiness in Mobasa and Nippon? Okay. Long story short. Yes. Navigador is definitely a sandboxy game too. We don't have a problem with it because Navigador is a crazy light game. It's practically a gateway plus. And it's also a very quick game. It's a game that will get finished in under an hour. So we don't mind the sandboxy nature there. Mombasa and Nippon are both very, very heavy games. They're long games, particularly bearing in mind the fact that Jen is a very AP-prone player. So um, any game, however long you expect it to take, it'll take us twice as long as a general rule. So um, that's why... I responded so strongly to the sandboxiness of Caverna and Nippon and Mombasa. But I didn't respond strongly, negatively, to the sandboxiness of something like Navigador. And I think that's where you're seeing that fundamental um, uh, split. I don't know if you have anything to say about sandboxiness. Because, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, we we were playing Nippon. It was either Nippon or Mombasa. No, it was Nippon. And, you know, we were halfway through our first game, and I'm like, well, what do you think? We always just talk. As we're playing, we're, we're talking about what we think and stuff like that, too. And just like, yeah, I, I should really like this, but I don't know why I'm not liking it. I, I don't know why it's not catching me, because everything here is fine. And I said, oh, it's because it's a sandbox. And, and she asked, well, what do you mean by that? Because I don't think we'd ever really talked about no, sandboxiness. Um, and it was a new term to her. And I said, well, yeah, it's, it's like, remember how Caverna, how like there's all the buildings and you just do whatever you want. And you, and you're like, she said, yeah, why do I have all of these things? And, um, you know, and I'd always long suspected Jen felt the same, but after we we talked about it, it's yeah. And, but again, we love Navigador, which is 100% sandbox. Every time you sit down, you're sitting, you're sitting down to the exact same scenario and it's wide open and there's nothing pushing you in any direction, but that's a really light, fast game. What, what about that Western game we just played? Um, with the six, Hangtown, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, all the oh yeah, San- that would be way too sandboxy for us. Um, well, here's the interesting thing: sandboxiness is a particularly problematic issue with two players, and that's why I think Uwe Rosen. Well, I mean, that's why I think um, a lot of people don't mind a sandboxy game because they're going to sit down with five, four, five, six players, whatever. The thing is, um, when you're only playing Caverna with two players. If um, last time I played it, you know, we, we did a certain thing and it worked a certain way, it's very likely that if I want, I can do that exact same thing. Yeah. Because I'm playing with the exact same person, it's very likely they're going to want to do the same thing again. Um, if I'm playing with six people, chances are, as soon as one person does something unexpected, that's going to have a ripple effect. That, you know, it's a, it's a pebble in the, in the pond and everything starts changing. Right. They start taking what you were going to do. Exactly. So Hangtown, which was a very cool little game. 
but very sandboxy. But um, you know, every time you play, there's all those buildings. But as soon as one of those buildings is taken, oh, now I have to do something different. But in a two-player game, it's very likely I'll be able to do the exact same thing if I want. And um, and I could do something different, but the game is the game is not creating a circumstance where it's up to me to solve a new and interesting puzzle. Because that's what Jen and I enjoy about I mean, we enjoy a puzzle to solve. Yeah. All games come down to that. That's why we're Eurogamers and not Ameritrashers. We like solving puzzles. We like sitting down at a table and having a really interesting puzzle to solve. And it's it's cool that we're both kind of working on the same puzzle and solving it in different ways and seeing how we both deal, deal with the same sorts of problems. Um, but we like it when a game gives us a new and different puzzle every time. When a game sits down and says, by the way, it, it, it's, um, it's like if we got really good... God, what would it be? I'm trying to think of, um, no, I can't think of one. Like a Rubik's Cube, I, I can't imagine getting good at solving a Rubik's Cube. But um, solving a puzzle where, you know what, it, it's the exact same thing, and we know how to solve, like uh, playing Sudoku. Yeah. It, you know, a sandbox game for us is like sitting down with Sudoku for the exact same puzzle every time. Yeah. Or, you know, and like, I already figured this puzzle out. Yeah. And yeah, maybe I don't remember all the particulars, but... I kind of know how this is going to work out if I play it again in a week. I don't want to play that. I want a different Sudoku puzzle. So that's why game variability is so important to us. We don't want to sit down and see the exact same um, options, the exact same components, the exact same objectives, the exact same scenarios, because that's like sitting down and saying, oh, hey, it's the same Sudoku puzzle. Well, and also, because we play so many games, when we sit down, we say, oh, well, now obviously this is one route you can go. Okay, I'm just going to go this route because it's not something I normally would do where you make a conscious decision to do this particular yeah. strategy. I, yeah, I'm not choosing that because, wow, this is going to be an interest. This is me coming up with a solution yeah. for the problem the game gave me. This is me. I will arbitrarily, this time, I will arbitrarily decide to be the goat master. Yep. Why? Just because I haven't done it before. That, there is nothing interesting about that decision. Yep. Nothing at all. It's completely, it's capricious. It's just a whim. And it's not why we play games. We play games because oh, if I become Goat Master, I will solve this problem. And so we want the game to create a situation where Goat Master is the perfect solution. <laughs> and now if a game sits down, and you know what? Goat Master is great every single time. Well, then we don't want to sit down and play that game. Yep. And that's why we don't like a sandbox. Unless it's so cool and, and Navigador is a really cool game. It's it's the one with the big rondelle, and you you start out in Europe, and you have to sail down around Africa, and you go over to the Far East, and, yeah. and you're building ships, and you know, and that's just a really fast, fun, very intense, quick engine building game that is very satisfying to play. So in that game, even though it's a pure sandbox, we will put up with it. We we don't like the sandboxy nature. We wish it wasn't, but the game is so good, we will put up with it. In much the same way as we don't like rolling dice in claustrophobia to um, to resolve the bad guys, um, you know, fighting each other. We'd much rather it come up with a really cool or like Legends of Andor. Legends of Andor is very cool. I wish it didn't have dice. I wish there were other ways, more clever and interesting ways, rather than it does clever things with the dice. But I wish there were other ways it would do it. But Andor itself is so good, we will put up with the dice. We will put up with the sandboxiness uh, in, if a game, if it's short or quick. Not if it's big or heavy. The, there's one sandboxy game we'll put up with. It's a big, heavy game, and that's Aura and Labora. And the only reason we'll put up with that is because two things. It drip feeds us the sandbox. Because you start out with, hey, there's a big sandbox. It's going to be the exact same thing you can do every game. But there's only, at the beginning of the game, there's only these four choices. You only have these four. So we're going to constrain you. 
And if I, and it, yeah, if, and it does have to be capricious. I do have to say, okay, at this time, I'm going to do the lighthouse. I've never done the lighthouse before. Let me do it. But as soon as I do that, as soon as I make that one decision, everything's going to go in a different direction because that game will see, even though it's a big wide open sandbox, it will seed very quickly and branch very quickly. Normally in a game like Hangtown, the game we played the other day, you need a lot of people at the board for it to branch out and do other stuff. Mm. Um, Caverna won't branch out unless you have a lot of players Mm. or at Labora will. That's our thoughts on sandboxness. Most I've ever, most I've even ever thought about it, quite frankly, but thanks for your question. So now Jake. you've got a new new term, the branchiness. The branchiness. How branchy is it? Yes. Um, right. So let's see here. Oh, uh, this is from Scott. What do you remember about working on Bubsy 3D? Possibly the worst PlayStation game of all time. Oh. Well, no. I mean, at, at the time, it was um, labeled, I think, the worst game of all time by Electronic oh. Gaming Monthly. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously that's bull crap. I'm... I'm proud of what I did in that game. I came in, that was my first job as a game, video game designer. I was a junior designer. I had no actual practical experience. But the, the entire team didn't. Uh, it was a team of very talented developers. Every single one of them had made a career of working in the prior generation. Working on Nintendo, Super Nintendo, PC. Working in two dimensions. Bubsy 3D was the first three-dimensional game for that entire team. It was the first game I'd ever done. It was the first 3D game for that entire team. And it was one of the first 3D games, period. Um, Because even then, back on the PlayStation, it was a 3D powerhouse. But unless it was Battle Arena Toshinden or Ridge Racer, um, they were still (laughs) mostly 2D games. The only truly 3D game at that point... I mean, heck, Doom and um, Wolfenstein, those were 2D games just with a different perspective. Of, of, those were berserk, but in two dimensions. Um, Bubsy was a true 3D game. And the only other one I can think of, there, there are probably some other ones I'm not thinking of, but Jumping Jack Flash was a true 3D game. And Jumping Jack Flash was the model for Bubsy 3D. And Jumping Jack Flash, I think, got a pass because, wow, it was really kind of cool and groundbreaking and all of that. Um, because, wow, I've never thought of a game in 3D. It was like a truly outside-the-box 3D game. Oh, one other truly 3D game, Descent on the PC. But that was still taking 2D shooters and making it 3D. And that was a brilliant game. One of the greatest games, most influential games of all time. Uh, but anyway, Jumping Jack Flash was our model. And it kind of got a pass because it was totally new. Um, our team didn't know what they were doing. They were trying to copy it. And the main difference between Jumping Jack Flash and Bubsy was Bubsy, we said, you know what? And these decisions were made before I even got there. I came in fairly late to the project. We are going to have a really long draw distance. We're going to have a big open world before anybody knew what a big open 3D world was. Um, Jumping Jack Flash had little tiny worlds to be able to do all its 3D. We're going to be as vertical as they were, but we're going to be in crazy horizontal. And that was a very big, very tough, very challenging problem to solve for a team of developers who had done almost no 3D work at all, who had done no polygonal work at all. So, I mean, the odds were stacked against us. But the problem with Bubsy more than anything else was it had the bad luck of coming out two months, even less, maybe a month after Super uh, Mario 64, which is another one of the most important video game milestones of all time. That was a game that an entire console was built to make. Miyamoto said, right, if I'm going to make a 3D Mario, you, Nintendo, have to build a console that will do what I want to do. 
3D Mario inter introduced the analog stick. Well, I mean, obviously analog sticks existed before, but it, it, it popularized what we all thought of as thumbsticks. That was designed. That was an entire console designed, ground up, the tech, the controls, everything to make Mario 64, well, arguably the most, one of the most, if not the most important console video game of all time. And meanwhile, we were this poor, schlubby team of people who didn't know what we were doing, just trying to figure out how to make a 3D game on a system that didn't really do 3D all as well as it, as it swore that it did. And, um, and uh, we came out about a month and we were slaughtered. We just had the bad luck of coming out. If Mario 64 had not come out, I don't think EGM would have called us the worst game of all time because we would not have been compared directly to the juggernaut that was... Super Mario 64. Um, but long story short, I, I, that game did a lot of really cool stuff. My responsibility on that game was working on the uh, bosses and the little multiplayer two-player game, which honestly I think was actually pretty innovative, and nobody's really done... Actually, no, that's not true. I eventually did see somebody recently in a little indie game did it, and everybody said, wow, this is a really cool way to do um, multiplayer. And yeah, we did it back in Mario... Bubsy, but nobody cares, because it was Bubsy 3D. But um, yeah... Ah, oh, Bubsy. I hardly knew you. Okay. Nicholas says... Dee, dee, dee. Um, oh. Oh, yeah. Uh, he's asking about Spirits of the Rice Paddy. Rice Paddy, uh, I raved about at great length. And um, when, when I did the run-through for it, I talked about it in, in a previous podcast. was really, really super stoked for it. And yet, comes to my top 10 of the year, and it disappears. No mention of it. What happened? You seem to enjoy the game immensely. Uh, now it appears your opinion has changed. Why, if anything? Um, particularly because they actually made an official Rotto variant. Um, you think that would make you like the game more? Because they actually did a variant in the rules to address the one shortcoming we had for the game, etc., etc. So, now this is an interesting question. I'll answer it on a broader scale. But, by, um, you know, this is a broader topic. Here's the thing. Spirits of Rise Paddy is not in my top ten because I do not have a copy of the retail version. I have only ever played Spirits of Rise Paddy in a prototype form. Jen has only played it in prototype form. I am not going to give it a ranking. You will notice it is not in my list of ranked games because I have never played the final version. I hope to someday play the final retail version, at which point I will give it a ranking. I know it'll be at a solid 8. It'll be somewhere above 8.2 probably below 8.8. I don't know where, because I can't judge it because I've only played a prototype. It wouldn't be fair of all the other games I've ranked, because I've ranked those as final versions. So that's why it's nowhere to be seen. Forge War, I almost did not get a retail copy in time, but I did pick up a copy of it at BGGCon, brought it back, played it again, played it with the new variant they did, loved it even more, and it made my, um, what was it, my number two of the year. Spirits of the Rice Paddy might have made it, but I don't have a retail version. There are a lot of games you have seen me do prototype run-throughs of, and I don't rate them because I haven't played them for reals. A prototype run-through... I mention this because it's a broader topic. Every time you see me do a prototype run-through for a Kickstarter game, I think those do a pretty good job of getting an idea of what the game feels like. Because the game, if it's on court, it's not going to change its feel. But I can't comment about what the real game is because I haven't played the real game. So that would be my answer to your question, Nick. And it is a phenomenal game. This is the game, you remember it, honey, where it's a, it's a farming simulation, but um, you know, and we're growing rice. And remember, the uh, you're, you're 
patties, you kind of expand them and the water starts filling and you have to create the sluice gate so yeah. the water goes from one place to the next to the next. And once it's done with yours, the leftover water will come to mine and you had the spirits to give you all kinds of cool superpowers and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was a really, really, really good game. Yeah. And why isn't it in my top 10? Because I don't own it. It comes down to that. I hope before I do my follow-up top 10 in April that I'll get a chance to play it. Okay, let's see. And next to the last question, this one is from Christopher. Um, this actually was a conversation um, I was having on YouTube earlier today. Uh, Christopher, because I mentioned in um, one of my videos recently, I don't remember how, um, that I liked J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Um, and New Trek, it's often derisively called. And uh, how can I say that? Um, when, you know, or, you know, because, because it's not Trek. And actually, no, he didn't ask this question. But um, a lot of people have asked me this question because I'm on record of my, my love of J.B. Abrams' Trek and, in, in all honesty, my love of Star Trek Into Darkness. <gasps> Gasp. And a lot of people have... Nobody's actually officially sent a question to questions at rado.com, but so many people ask me about this. I figured I'm just taking Christopher because he asked me about it on YouTube, and I kind of answered there, but I figured I'd ask. And that's a good segue into the last topic. What about J.J.'s uh, Star Wars? Star Wars. Okay, um, here's, here's what I got to say about J.J. Abrams' new Trek. Anybody who says that Star Trek, Star, Star Trek 9 basically, or is it, no, Star Trek 10 or Star Trek Into Darkness is not Star Trek, what they're really saying is it's not Star Trek Next Generation. Gene Roddenberry, the great bird of the galaxy, I don't know what happened to him in the 70s, but in the 60s, when he was making the original Star Trek, TOS, which is what Star Trek is, he was putting in crazy fist fights and explosions and ship-to-ship combat. He was doing the best he could with the limited budget he had and the limited technology to make what is effectively J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Big, bombastic, you know... um, Huge, exciting space opera, the wagon train to the stars. I mean, it was it was a buddy movie. I mean, it was all about you know the Holy Trinity, Kirk, Spock, and Bones. Um, you know, you know what was it? Um, you know, mind, heart, and spirit. You know, all that stuff. And it was a perfect formula. But every week, Kirk beats the crap out of people. Ships get blown up left, right, and center. Um, and people forget that because there is an entire generation. That to them, what Star Trek is, is Jean-Luc Picard, is Commander Riker, is Deanna Troy, is Commander Worf. And now, don't get me wrong. I've watched every single episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I love Star Trek The Next Generation. But Star Trek The Next Generation is not Star Trek. It is something else. There is no... You know, it, it, Star Trek is the wild, wild west. It is crazy, exciting, fun adventures laced... With thought-provoking, um, moralistic, uh, mo- yeah, moralistic stuff. Uh, you know, Star Trek, the original series, first interracial kiss on network television. Um, you know, I mean, so uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, all, all these things where they use thinly veiled science fiction tropes to be able to comment about stuff that they could never have talked about, the Vietnam War and um, you know, race relations and all this stuff. Star Trek is huge, watershed moments, but it never gets away from the fact that it is. Fun. It is alive. It, ha- it is full of life and joy and excitement and adventure. And J.J. Abrams, Trek 10 and Trek 11, both do that. But 
like I said, something happened to, to, uh, to Roddenberry in the 70s because when he got back to Trek, he made the motion picture. And the motion picture was basically just um, taking the ideas he had for Star Trek II, the, the TV show. He, you know, that's when he introduced the concept of, oh, in the future, there is no money. In the future, human society is perfect and there is no conflict. Um, and because he, you know, there was some of that in the original Trek, but that was not the, not the truth. I mean, people got paid um, in, when they worked in Starfleet. People had day-to-day -day worries. And, you know, the crew of the Enterprise, they were not perfect humans. But... Roddenberry decided, no, I want Star Trek to change. I want Star Trek to be about this perfect, egalitarian future where everybody is perfect, everybody is measured and calm, and every dispute is resolved in a sit-down committee around the big conference table. Remember the conference table in Star Trek The Next Generation? If you compare um, tr um, Kirk and Scotty and Bones and Spock sitting around, and Sulu and Nurse Chapel and whoever sitting around that their conference table in original Trek versus the you know the conversations you have in Next Gen, you know I mean uh, the term navel gazing comes to mind. There's a lot of navel gazing, a lot of um, poet philosopher warriors. That's what Picard is. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of empathy, and I sense this. Yes. Oh, the fact that they put a ship's counselor sitting next to the captain, that would not do in original Trek. That, that has no place. And so, like I said, something changed about Roddenberry. He wanted Star Trek to be something else. That's cool. I have no problem. I think that, and in some things, I think that's great. I think he wasn't beholden to what Star Trek was. I'm glad he was willing to try something new and different. That's great. That's wonderful. And it gave us some wonderful things, like um, you know the the one with the flute and the oh, yeah. there are four lights and you know some incredible, amazing stuff. No choice about it. But it's not what Star Trek originally is. J.J. Abrams making New Trek. He was not trying to placate next gen fan. He was not trying to recreate next gen because next gen is slow and stayed. The first time I ever saw ship alert, intruder alert, and Commander Worf leading a group of um, of uh, security guys walking calmly <laughs> down the corridor while da da dun da dun dun da da dun 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 action music is playing as they walk calmly to the corridor to get to whatever the intruder alert is. Yeah, okay, this is not Star Trek. This is something else. And so, yeah, Kirk would have been booking down that corridor. And in J.J. In Abrams' Star Trek, they run like hell. And they run faster than anybody could have ever run on the original series because they have the budget to make a corridor long enough for them to run at full speed. <laughs> and in the original series, they would have run at full speed if they could have. So when any, anybody, whenever anybody says J.J. Abrams does not understand the true spirit of Star Trek and he has made an abomination... They're just saying he didn't make Star Trek The Next Generation. And you know what? That's fine by me because that is not Star Trek. That is something else entirely. And so that's why Star Trek, the reboot... Well, first of all, it's brilliant. I mean, a brilliant trick with the... Spoiler alert, the whole temporal tricks to be able to reset and you know address the whole we have no idea what's going to happen and yeah you sure as hell don't know what because vulcan is gone i mean who knew i mean that's that's great that you know they can up the stakes in a way they would never be able to do i thought that was just a brilliant clever thing and that was perfect trek because trek has always been about big ideas and science fiction and that was such a great smart way to use science fiction to achieve something very very important i'm sorry honey, do you have anything to say about trek or do i just keep on ranting you're great okay um and uh, and but you know but it was also at its heart 
it, it, it was um, about two men on different paths in their lives. That's why it starts out with Spock and Kirk as young children and, and the um, hurdles they have to overcome. So it has the heart. It has the science fiction. And now the much maligned into darkness. Everybody seems to forget that a big thing about Star Trek The Original Generation was about taking on really huge, hard topics that you cannot talk about in pop culture. You cannot examine ideas and say, yeah, we can do whatever we want because we'll just paint one side of a guy's face black and another side of his face white, and we'll talk about man's inhumanity to man right there because we can do it because it's science fiction, baby. Star Trek The Into Darkness casts Osama Bin Laden in a sympathetic role. And that takes balls. In our modern society, where it's America, um, hoorah, you know, we can do no wrong, we are, you know, and all that stuff, to, ta- to, to use science fiction to say, hey, you know what? Osama bin Laden, Al-Qaeda, everything about it, they don't see, you know, because, spoiler alert, Khan, um, you know, Benedict, you know, uh, Cumberbatch, was a sympathetic villain. I know a lot of people complain, hey, what's with making Khan a sympathetic villain? That's crap! He needs to be an evil villain! Why is with all this sympathy and you know, making us care about his plight? Because that was, used, that was Star Trek at its best. Using science fiction to talk about something that you can't talk about. I mean, you know, American Sniper doesn't talk about this stuff. American Sniper is very hoorah, um, you know, you know, and and heck, and it makes a bajillion dollars at the box office. Star Trek Into Darkness dares to actually examine the reality of American jingoistic interference and fear-based politics, and what kind of impact that can have, and what c- that can do to the world. And you know, that's exactly what they do. And um, that's Star Trek. And then, yeah, there's a lot of kick-ass adventure and excitement and explosions because that's what Star Trek original series wanted to be and couldn't because of low budget and low technical. So, yeah, J.J. Abrams verse, awesome. And I cannot wait for the next one because, quite frankly, if um, Gene Roddenberry had the budget to be able to do a big, gigantic, super um, BMX super bike jump like you see in that trailer, you better believe they would have put that into the original Trek if they could. They didn't because they couldn't. Um, you know, and so in, you know, instead they, um, just basically reused sets from movies and said, Hey, well, let's just set this in a Coliseum arena because we can get access to this set or whatever, you know, so they could do these big over the top things as well. So I'm sorry. That's my feeling about Star Trek. Cause just a lot of people have asked. And then Christopher asked, um, honey, do you have anything you would like to say about JB Abrams, Star Trek reboot movies? Uh, I'm enjoying them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you feel that they piss all over the legacy of Trek and what Trek is? They're not Trek because they don't feature a bunch of people sitting around a conference table and talking about, well, what are the uh, ramifications of this? And how do you feel about this? And how does this make you feel? And let's walk very slowly from one place to another. I think if you look at Star Trek and you look at Next Gen and as sort of an evolution of an idea. Jen and I have never spoken about this. Have. I have no idea what she's about to say. Okay. Well, if you look at it, it's sort of as a lifetime experience. Um Original Trek is more like a young person and the kinds of daring and bold things that they will go out and do because they haven't learned anything better. And in fact, maybe their brains aren't even fully developed. Um, So they're a lot more willing to go out and take risks and do crazy things and try different stuff. Uh, Next Gen is very much more of a, what I would call a mature uh, type of, Ah. of, of 
show in that, yeah, you're talking, you're getting consensus, you're thinking through ideas. You're, you're looking for diplomatic solutions. Diplomatic There's solutions. no cowboy diplomacy in next gen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just think it's basically, and, and again, we are, J.J. Abrams is coming back to the original Trek. So we're talking with Kirk and Spock and everybody again. It's a different time. It's a different time in the timeline. It's appropriate to get back exactly. to that spirit. Yes. That's very interesting. We haven't gone to the more, you know, the species hasn't evolved. By another 70 years or whatever it is, well, the time yeah. between Trek and next gen. Yeah. I mean, I would love to live in the next gen universe <laughs> where people are, everybody's respected for the con contributions that they make. Nobody has to worry about money. Nobody has to worry about having their bases covered. That You know, everybody's got food and shelter and enough, that kind of stuff. I love that whole universe. I think that is where we should all be trying to get to. Mm. But basically this early Trek is not, we're not there yet. And I have no problem at all with not being there yet with this group of characters. <laughs> Plus, they're delicious. <laughs> yes, they are. So, um, that's very interesting. And it actually has a very big bearing on my feelings about um, Star Wars and why um, I think the prequels are really pretty gosh darn good and um, why I'm not a big fan of Force Awakens. Mm. Um, so, last question. I think it was Jason asked, uh, what do we think of... Force Awakens. Jen and I, we went and watched it on New Year's Eve. And by the way, um, I don't think we're going to talk about big spoilers. We're not going to get into particulars of, oh, and then X happened. And then when, remember when Y happened? We're not going to do that. So if you're worried about spoilers, I don't think we'll never do anything like that. But we will. I mean, I don't know what Jen's going to talk about. We haven't talked about this at all. <laughs> but I will definitely talk about my feeling about the structure and the meaning and the, uh, and, and the comparison between it and the others. So tune out now because there's not going to be anything else we're going to talk about now except for Star Wars. Your call in five, four, three. Two, two, one. All right. So if you're still here, Star Wars Force Awakens, it is perfectly fine. I would rather watch Star Trek 10 than Star Wars Force Awakens any day of the week. Um, I think it is a much, much better movie. I think it is a much better treatment um, of, the, uh, of the franchise. It's trying to you know reinvigorate for a new audience and all that stuff. Don't get me wrong. There is nothing wrong with Force Awakens. It was totally fine. It was brilliantly put together. It's gorgeous. The, um, all the characters are wonderful, and that's mostly down to the fact that they are all wonderfully portrayed by very charismatic actors, and they all have very interesting backstories. Absolutely love Finn. I'm not going to say who he is because I don't want to spoil anything. Loved Ray. Um, Poe, well, you know, I could. that one kind of felt like they were trying really hard to make me like him almost too much. I'm like, okay, back off. You don't need to make me make Poe. That was the pilot, you know, right at the beginning. Um, Poe po, right? po Dameron. Who is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, okay, you don't need to push Poe that hard. That's fine. He's not the next Han Solo, fine. But Finn and uh, Ray, they were very interesting. Uh, they had very interesting backstories. And that was a darn cute little robot. A BB-8 is amazing. Yeah. I don't think you realize this. I mean, almost everything you see there is real. I mean, they didn't do CGI with him. He was really? like, that, that, they made this little robot who did everything he does. How do you get the headpiece? Um, and you can actually buy one of those now. Cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, and they, they make a little self-controlled ones, so they move around on their own. Is it and magnetic? Uh, we'll talk about it later. Okay. Um, anyway, there's videos you can see online of how, how it works. You know, the, cool. like cutaways of what's like inside. Yeah. Heck of a lot better than Jar Jar. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with Jar Jar. We'll come back to that in a second. Um, anyway, so there's a lot of really great stuff in Star Wars, but I had two big fundamental problems. And I, Jen, and I re after we watched the movie, it was late. We didn't really talk about it. We've never talked about it. I have no idea what Jen's going to say, what she thinks, but I'll say what I think first. It was great. It was workmanlike. I had a good time watching it, 
But I was hugely disappointed for two reasons. One, um, it takes no risks. It doesn't, it's, it's so, it plays everything safe. Everything is by committee. Obviously, I mean, a lot of people complain about how, um, you know, it, 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 cur- it curbs way too much from the original Star Trek, you know, uh, Star Trek 4, 5, and 6. That, it, you know, it, you know that, I mean, a lot of people have gone so far as to say, it's a remake, it's a remake. And I'm not going to go so that far. I'm not going to say it's a remake. That's not fair. It is basically Star Wars 4, 5, and 6 greatest hits remix tape. <laughs> It is a remix tape. It is, oh, did you like that from Empire? Did you like that from Return? Did you like that from New Hope? We got it. We've, we put all these things in. We'll mix it up in a blender. We'll give you a new taste of it. You're going to like that, right? You're going to love it. You're going to love it. And obviously, audiences have. It's literally, the, I, I think by now, it's probably the most successful movie of all time in cinematic history. Wow. You have Justin for Inflation and everything. Yeah, it's just been a super monster hit. Wow. Um, and that is because it is designed... To be oh Star Trek or Star Wars fans, please like me, and yeah, of course you do because it gives you every single thing you wanted, you know, hook, line, and sinker. It takes no chances. It doesn't do anything interesting, or exciting. That's not true. It does some interesting stuff. Probably the single most interesting thing about that movie is Finn and who he is and where he comes from and what his story is. And I when I because I, I went in not knowing anything about this movie, I avoided spoiler or you know trailers as much as possible. So did Jen. We knew very little. Um, although actually I did know cause it was spoiled for me by stupid. I can't remember what it was, but you know, the, you know, the, the, the big thing was spoiled, which I won't say what, um, but you know, there, there was a, there was a big thing that was spoiled, but other than that, I went in knowing nothing and, um, Finn was a fantastic, um, and, and, and the, the fundamental, the, the MacGuffin of the movie, that was fantastic too. I love both of those, and they did nothing with either of them. They're, they're, you know, the, the, the movie wasn't about the MacGuffin, and Finn, after they introduced this really cool thing about him, they did nothing with him. Um, and that was so, there was so much cool stuff there. They could have done something really cool and interesting and brave and exciting, like what I just talked about, Star Trek Into Darkness, did brave, interesting things, but they did nothing. They played everything safe. And now what that meant is they made a perfectly entertaining movie that didn't screw up anything. It made no mistakes. But you know what? It's easy to make no mistakes when you don't take risks. Hmm. Star Trek Into Darkness takes risks. And every single one of the Star Wars prequels takes huge risks. And because of that, they make a lot of mistakes. But the Star Wars prequels, to compare that to Force Awakens, Force Awakens, like I said, is just a remix of Star Trek 4, 5, and 6. The Star Wars prequels, Lucas said, I'm going to do something new and different. There's a line from Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope... Um, talking about lightsabers, you know, it's a, a more elegant weapon from a, a more civilized time or something like that. That's, you know, there's just this one line. And that line defines everything about the prequels. The reason people say the prequels don't feel like Star Wars is because they're a different world. It's, it is a more civilized time. It is a time when the, when the, the Jedi were, were so 
solidified and so much a part of normal everyday life, they had they had broken down the um what is now just spiritual mumbo jumbo, you know, hokey religions, kid, or no replacement for a blaster. Well, yeah, um, you know, a generation before, 20 years before, everybody understood they knew what midi chlorians were. And by the way, don't get me started on midi chlorians. Everybody misquotes midi chlorians. They don't completely un- invalidate the spiritual nature of the force. They are when 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 somebody says somebody's force sensitive, it just means they've got well anyway, besides the point. But the thing is, George Lucas was willing to take chances. He was willing to create something in the Star Wars universe with a completely different feel because it was a different time. It was a more civilized time. George Lucas, um, particularly in the second one, um, not Phantom Menace, but the second one, uh, Attack of the Clones, was basically making his Merchant Ivory film. Um, and he was making a murder mystery crossed with a love story, um, crossed with a political, um, with a, a, a political um, thriller. That's not what Star Wars is when you look at 4, 5, and 6. That's because he was doing something brave and interesting and different and new and exciting, and I respect the hell out of him. And because he was doing brave things, coming up with really interesting takes, showing you something new and different, yeah, he made mistakes. Of course he made mistakes. Of course. No one's going to argue that Jar Jar wasn't, could have been done much, much better. Don't get me wrong. I think Jar Jar did what he intended to do brilliantly, which is make an entire generation of kids laugh. You know, there are plenty of kids who are going to grow up, and when they're in their 20s, they're going to defend Jar Jar Binks because they thought he was funny when they were a kid. He was only there for kids. Um, and he did fine. Um, you know, and he could have been done better. A lot of things could have been handled better. The only mistake George Lucas made in the prequels was not um, teaming up with Lawrence Kasdan to clean up his dialogue, as far as I'm concerned. Because I think all the plot beats are great. They are interesting. They, they introduce us to new different sides of Star Wars. They fulfill that one line from Obi-Wan Kenobi in A New Hope, uh, an elegant weapon from a civilized time. They, um, and, you know, they, oh, gosh. Okay, I'm, all right. Okay, I have to disagree with you there. Okay, go on. I was very unhappy. Well, no, you were unhappy about one thing. Yes. And I would agree with you that that was a mistake, but there was a reason he did it. Um, wow, we're going deep into Star Wars spoilers. In case anybody hasn't seen Revenge of the Sith, you've seen it all if you're still listening. Yes, honey. <laughs> um, well, no. What do you think about the prequels, except for that one little bit? And we'll come to that little bit. Well, I know what you're, what you're talking I about. I know you know what I'm talking about. Because we've talked about it. Yes, we have talked about that. Um, no, I, I found them enjoyable. I don't think I look at movies in the same way that you do. Uh, I am there much more to enjoy them and to be in the moment and not really think them through as deeply as you do. So, mm-hmm. uh, And they were fine. And they were fine. Right. Except for one thing. Yeah. What was that, honey pie? Golly, I wonder. Could it be that a very strong female character died of a broken heart of some stupid thing? She sure did. That was ridiculous. Right. A strong. Oh, right. And for God. a whole new generation of young girls... Yep. To yeah, to to do her like that, to you know, um, the med- for the medical bots say there's nothing wrong with her medically, yep. and yet she's still dying. We don't understand. Um, right. Ridiculous. Now here's the thing. I will agree with you that was a misstep and that could have been done better. But the thing is, he did that for a reason. I believe, and it was again him taking chances. And again, you take chances. Sometimes you succeed. Sometimes you fail. Here's the thing. The prequels um, are all about. Well, no. The prequels, you can't look at them, if you're really going to pay attention to Star Wars, you can't look at them in a vacuum. You have to look at them as the a, as a prequels to the sequel. 
they give meaning to the sequel that never existed before. Because if you think of the, you know, four, five, and six by themselves, it's just the journey story of a young boy growing up and fulfilling his destiny and all that. But the thing is, the prequels create a meaning for that destiny, the, which goes back to the prophecy of the Force. Um, Anakin is supposed to bring balance to the Force. Everybody thinks that just means, oh, he's supposed to help destroy the Sith. No, that's not. The Jedi suck. In the prequels, the Jedi are just as much of a problem that are just as much ruining the galaxy as Palpatine is because they have got stayed in their ways, because they have gotten away from, I mean, because they've become such an insular, um, self important group of warrior Buddhist monks that they have lost touch with the true meaning of the Force. And they look at it as just as myopically as the Dark Side does. They're just as bad. Um, and that is the reason that Anakin is ruined. That is why he falls. Because he falls in with it. Now, if Qui-Gon Jinn hadn't died, because Qui-Gon Jinn was a rebel. No, you know, the, the council didn't like him. They didn't approve of his methods. They didn't like the fact they brought this kid in. The council just wanted to shoo him away. Well, I guess we have to because Qui-Gon is cool. And if Qui-Gon hadn't died, um, everything would have gone differently. But as soon as Qui-Gon was gone and Obi-Wan was young, he was, um, you know, and Obi-Wan was racist. Um, and, um, you know, and all this stuff. So there's all these interesting things that Lucas puts in there. Um, you know, or not racist, but specious, I guess. Um, you know, alien racist. Really interesting stuff. Um, but, so, uh, without Qui-Gon there, Anakin gets his training in the approved Jedi manner, which is completely divorce yourself from your feelings. And if you do that, you divorce yourself from the Force. And that is why... Um, the, Je- the Jedi's have agreed that this is what they need to do. They need to uh, expunge themselves of emotion. No connections because, because the Jedi live in fear. Fear leads to hate. Hate leads to anger. Anger leads to the dark side or whatever it is. Um, that is their motto. It is wrong. It ruined Anakin because he had to go into secret. It, um, it allowed Palpatine to, to manipulate him and ultimately destroy him. And so the Sith were destroyed. Cut to 20 years later. Um, Luke's journey is not just a typical hero's journey. It was in 1977, but now it is a journey of redemption for his father because Luke does not have the Jedi Council to teach him in the proper way. And in fact, Yoda tries. In Empire, Yoda says, no, do not go save your friends. You have to divorce yourself. You have to stay here and be training. Um, if you go off and do the emotional thing, if you put your friends and your the loved ones of your life ahead of, of, of my Buddhist monk training, everything's going to be ruined. Um, Anakin didn't deal with that correctly, and everything went wrong. Luke put his priorities correctly. Luke said, Master, I have to walk away. I have to go save my friends. And he did. And Luke, wa- Luke basically um, walked the path of a Jedi that Qui-Gon Jinn walked. Because Qui-Gon Jinn, who, by the way, is such a great Jedi that he is the one who refines, um, you know, Force ghosts and all that stuff. Because he's he was the one truly in touch with the Force. None of the the other the Jedi Council didn't know about Force ghosts. Qui-Gon Jinn did because he was in touch. Um, Luke is able to basically atone for the sins of his father, and as a result of that, um, is able to, um, you know, allow Anakin, you know, to basically bring. Uh, because Anakin did bring balance to the Force because he got rid of the Jedi Order, which was just as screwed up and just as wrong. And, and you know, it took a long time. There was a lot of strategy, and it's too bad Alderaan had to get blown up. But now, at the end of the, um, of the series, the original series, Luke, with the proper approach to the Force, because the Jedi Council got out of the way, 
can actually go forward. And now, of course, it all, well, anyway, then we'll get back to Force Awakens in a second, which completely ignores all of this stuff, even though all of this stuff is beautiful and meaningful and is built up over this incredible series. Um, this is back to Amidala and Leia. Yeah. This is my belief. It's not just about Luke atoning for Anakin's sins. It's about Leia's atoning for Amidala's. Because Amidala was a smart woman. Yep. She was brave. She was honorable. She made some mistakes. Um, you know, she felt, you know, she was young. She she took some wrong steps too. And ultimately, yeah, she died of a broken heart, for lack of a better term. Cut fast forward 20 years to Leia, her daughter. Leia is cold as ice. Leia um is is a completely different person. Um, but over the course of the, the, the trilogy, Leia thaws. Leia, in the first movie, sees her whole planet dies, and then within, you know, in the next day is pretty much over it. Yeah. Um, you know, but, you know, and so she's cold. She's gone too far in the other direction. But over the course of the movie, she, um, you know, because she's gone so far away. Not that she knows anything about her mother, but she's gone so far away from her mother. Her mother, Amidala, was unbalanced, just like Anakin was unbalanced. And she failed. Leia finds the correct path and finds the correct balance. Hmm. And that's... Do you think George Lucas yes. got that through? Yes. Yes, I do. So, that's why I think the prequels are really, really cool. And yes, they make lots of mistakes, and but that's because they were taking risks. Back to Force Awakens. Force Awakens doesn't take any risks. So it doesn't make any mistakes, and it doesn't do anything great. So that's my feeling about Star Wars. One other thing I complain about, I love the fact that in 20 years between the prequels and you know, the original trilogy, the world changes. The wor- it feels like the world is alive and dynamic because of this... Um, totalitarian regime and whatnot, the galaxy feels like a different place. It feels like this is a real place. It was a wonderful, elegant, beautiful world. You look at um, you know, what the world looked like in the prequels. It's, it, you want to go to there. You want to live there. And then it's the Old West because things have degraded so much in Star Trek or you know, in, in the original prequels. 20 years later, in Time Force Awaken, nothing has changed. Everything is in stasis. Oh, the Empire's gone? Well, it's the First Order now. Um, you know, I mean, everything is exactly the same. Again, this is an example of not taking chances, not doing something risky. Finn could have been something cool. The main MacGuffin plot of the story could have been something cool, but they were not. They played it safe, and so I would rather watch the prequels um, than... I would watch any prequel movie right now over Force Awakens because that was a movie of vision, that was a movie that was about something that was building something. That was not a carbon copy greatest hitch remix tape, which is what Force Awakens is. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I enjoyed Force Awakens. It was nice to see the crew. It was good to see the it was good to see the band back together yeah. on their um yeah again on, it, their do, do, on, on their reunion tour with their remixes of their all their greatest hits. That's nice. There's nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to see something. I wanted to be challenged. And there was... That's not fair. That's not being fair to fair. There are some interesting things. But on the whole, um, it didn't deliver up to the promise of what Star Wars always has been. And what I believe, if Lucas had still been in charge, what Lucas understands and what Lucas would have done. And J.J., I don't know. Uh, J.J.'s a smart cat. He probably understands it too. But he also understands that, wow, there is so much hate for the prequels 
misplaced, very incorrect hate, as I just described, in my opinion, that he can't afford to take any chances, so he took no chances. Well, and if there's ever going to be future Star Wars movies, he wants to be at the head, so he better... Well, no, he's actually not going to... I'm sure he's going to be an architect of it, but he's not directing the next one. Um, But anyway, so that was my feeling of Force Awakens, Honey Pie, with a slight detour into other stuff. How did you feel about Force Awakens? I have a much briefer... Okay. Uh, I I thought it was an enjoyable movie-going experience, but that was it. It was, it, there was no emotional resonance mm-hmm. for me. And these are characters that I grew up with. Yeah. You know, I've read the books even. And what did you, I mean, you, um, you, I don't, I think I showed you one trailer and I'm sure you forgot it. Did you know Han Solo was going to be in the movie? I think you probably had forgotten. I don't remember anything. Right. So, so what did you think? You, oh my God, Han, that's Han Solo. And that's Chewbacca. Yeah. I mean, I, so. I was like, what? Yeah, and then, I mean, I know I looked over when Leia was first, because I knew you yeah. didn't know she was there. Yeah. And I saw you were smiling big. Yeah, well, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. It was, like I said, it was great to see the crew mm-hmm. and and kind of catch up with everybody and see what they'd been doing and what they looked like 20 years later. And Yeah. You know, Turns the- out they were doing nothing. <laughs> Apparently. It turns out they had been in stasis for 20 years, just waiting pause on hold so they could basically be the exact same characters you know and love and you completely throw away everything the fact you know um everything about that the the new trilogy did you know han solo says bah, i'm just gonna hit the reset button and go back to being han from a new hope because everybody wants to see that you know mm. i'm sorry go on i interrupted you you were giving your well, thoughts no, that, that's basically it is there there were some big things that happened in this movie and i would have expected them to hit me hard mm-hmm. and they didn't. Yep. 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 There you go. And so that and is Jen's. That's disappointing. Yep. So there you go. That is what Jen and I think, Jason, of uh, <laughs> yes, Jason. Star Wars, The Force Awakens. The Force Awakens. And I think that's it, folks. We're going to end it right there. Yeah, I really hope all this stuff recorded because I don't want to do it again. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press stop and see if we didn't run out of space an hour ago. So thanks for listening. Talk to you next month. So long. Oh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.